to say that it's we're live. Okay. So, members, you're very welcome to this afternoon's uh, Executive Office Committee meeting. Um, if I could begin with item one, which is the apologies. Clerk, do we have any apologies? Uh, just if, uh, if George isn't here yet, he said he may be delayed. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Chairman's business, I'll just move on today because I know we have a couple of items that are racked up So, uh, and we have a busy matter of the rising list. So if they go to item three, please, the draft minutes. Uh, the draft minutes of the meeting that was held on the 17th of February are page six of the meeting pack. Are members content that that is a true reflection of those proceedings? Um, I might just Michael, you go on to if you're if you yep perfect so item four then matters arising uh, or on page 15 of the meeting pack uh, and there is a response from the executive office regarding the virtual meeting of the European Commission vice president with a number of organizations in Northern Ireland uh, would members agree maybe that we should write to the Northern Ireland office just to find out how the meeting was organized and how these were selected Okay, I think I'm going to go with if members are happy enough with that. Um, then on page 17 of the meeting pack is a matter, um, a matter, sorry, is a list of the matters that were raised during the closed session with the EU Affairs members last week and the related documents. So just to confirm with members that future briefings of the EU Affairs Manager will take place in public session. Uh, that's the first thing, and that the transcript of the evidence session with the European v Commission Vice President to the Eructus Joint Committee on European Union Affairs, which was referred to in the EU Affairs Manager's briefing, is included in the relevant papers for today's Junior Minister's session. Uh, there were a number of actions that were suggested from last week, one of which was to ask the Committee for the Economy if that committee has undertaken any of the business engagement forum and also for us to write to the Westminster Parliament in relation to the participation of the Northern Ireland Assembly in the Parliamentary Partnership Assembly, which is envisaged under the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. Are members agreeable to those actions? Yep. Okay. Then on page 24, the meeting pack is an overview of the issues that were raised by the Northern Ireland Youth Forum at last week's meeting. Members of the committee has written to the speaker to ask for an update in the Youth Assembly and the clerk has been investigating ways in which the committee can better engage with young people in the future. But could I get your agreement to write to the Minister of Education to uh, or sorry to the yes to the Minister of Education to ask that the mental health issues uh, be embedded into the curriculum and to support the request from the Northern Ireland Youth Forum to meet to present the key issues for students across Northern Ireland. Members being agreed to that. I can hear a voice, but I can't see who it is. Is that you, Christopher? Yes, it yeah. is. It's not the voice of God. Um, I was just pulling to say, uh, to say uh, could we circulate that also to the Minister for Health? That's my that's my next line. <laughs> the next one is to write to the Minister for Health to ask that a portion of the COVID funding be used to help support the voluntary sector in delivering vital mental health services, uh, which I think is a follow-on. But maybe that issue of the Minister of Education previously could be copied to the Minister for Health as well uh, at, at Christopher's suggestion there. 
And then if we could write to the Minister for the Economy to ask that the meeting with the Our Voices group be rescheduled as soon as possible. That was due to take place, but uh, it was obviously postponed. But if we could encourage that. And then finally, if we could write First and Deputy First Minister to ask that the executive ensure that young people's basic human rights are met and upheld in light of the COVID-19 impact on current policies and that the youth press conference is rescheduled as a matter of urgency. Would there be agreement in that broadly? Okay, that's grand. Okay, then members, we move on then to the next item, which is the departmental spending plan. And we have an oral evidence session from departmental officials. And if we could get brought up into the spotlight, please, uh, we should have Dr. Mark Brown, uh, Neely Lloyd, and Tara Kennedy, uh, if those are there. I think we're seeing some of them. Excellent. And we will maybe get your... Uh, yeah, I think, is Tara there okay? Yes, I'm here. Okay. Oh, yeah, okay, excellent. That's good, good, okay. Uh, uh, okay, so Mark, we'll pass over to yourself maybe to make an initial um, presentation. We will, of course, again uh, congratulate you on your recent uh, promotion and change of job uh, moving away from us, which we will, of course, miss the opportunity to have these uh, presentations and questioning and answering sessions. Um, I'm sure you'll do a a great job over in uh, education. Uh, it's you know it's a, a, a very big and busy department, and especially at the moment, and it will be a very uh, difficult task. But we certainly wish you all the best in that. Um, I'd continue to at all times extol youth services, which is a responsibility of the Department of Ed Education, and know that you will give it the suitable priority and. Uh, prominence that it should should definitely get as being a fabulous sector delivering for young people in Northern Ireland and indeed we have just in our action sheets there uh, discussed the um, inputs that we had from quite a number of young people last week uh, and it was always refreshing to hear from them but I know that you'll you'll do a great job for that and I'll wait until after the presentation before I berate the fact that we don't have a paper but I'll leave that one until after you've given us your presentation so Mark we'll pass over to yourself for one final time and I get to say once again, one final time, that you're still on mute. <laughs> Should you? No, I'm the only one. I think it's maybe if the comms team are there, if there's some issue, just to, to getting Mark unmuted there, please, if you could help. Okay, just one second. Okay, yeah. But it's just, just like Mark, the uh, report doesn't say anything and, because we don't have it. Now you're not able to sense it. Well, they're suggesting that you are off mute. It may be your headset. I know personally I had the problem today where I had to just completely unplug them and just use the natural... Uh, microphone of the computer if that's maybe an option
No. Do you do you want to maybe just try unplugging the the headphones and just using the ordinary? Okay. Um <laughs> So, okay, well we're going to have to maybe try and see if we can get matters fixed here. Um, it would appear that the, there is some problem. He did try unplugging his microphone and headset there and there still wasn't any sound, but I do see that he has now been uh, taken out of the spotlight, which may allow him to get rebooted back in and onto the system. So um, we will see if we give him a little moment or two on that. And if that maybe helps to get him rebooted and back in again. Nelia, is there a, a written report that could be read out or? No, ah, we're not hearing you either. So I'm, we're, we can't just blame poor Mark on this. Sure we can't. Uh, okay, folks, what I'm going to do is I'm going to suggest that we take a break for five minutes just to see if we can get this sorted out. And if I maybe could just suggest to both to the comms team there that none of those that are in the uh, spotlight are able to access their, their microphones at all. So there must be something more uh, central to that. But if I could ask the comms team just to take us off public session until we get the technical problems sorted on at this stage yeah okay so folks thank you very much indeed for um bearing with us there um i think there is a, a vicious rumor that one of these weeks we're going to have a committee meeting without problems but i'm not sure about that we'll have to wait and see if that's going to be a possibility but i understand that now we do have uh, at this stage mark and tara are definitely able to both hear and speak to us and we're working on uh, Nelia there as well so mark i'll pass over yourself then uh, to make your presentation for us please okay thanks very much uh, chair and, and 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 thanks for your very kind comments earlier on uh, it has been a pleasure working with the committee over the last number of years and uh, I always expect the committee to ask searching questions and it's never a problem. It's always been done in a very courteous way, so thank you for that. Uh, I do want to start by apologizing for the fact that there hasn't been a paper uh, made available to the committee. I know you've promised to berate me afterwards on that. Uh, we've done our best to try and get that through. There are just some issues that needed to be resolved that haven't yet uh, been been sorted. Um, but I will give an outline of the, the financial position. I'll be happy to pick up questions after that. 
So the, just by way of background, the Minister of Finance announced the executive draft budget for 2021 on the 18th of January, uh, which sets out the proposed spending plans for uh, the, the coming year. Uh, not surprisingly, the, the budget presents significant challenges for the executive and for all departments with a, a very constrained spending review outcome, particularly in the context of COVID-19. So the draft budget proposals are currently being consulted upon with views being sought from all interested parties by the 25th of February, which is tomorrow, 2021. Uh, and a final budget will then follow once the consultation period closes and after executive review and agreement, uh, a final budget will be set for next year. In terms of the TEO uh, budget, uh, although the consultation document indicates a 24.3% increase, in TEO's resource Dell budget, and that is arithmetically correct. Um, it's important to note that the draft budget doesn't actually give TEO any additional funding for its business as usual uh, activities. The reason why the funding has gone up in arithmetical terms is because there's some specific uh, additional funding for particular areas, such as the implementation costs for victims' payments uh, for permanent disablement, uh, for the historical institutional abuse redress scheme, uh, and then for a smaller items for EU match funding and EU exit. And all of those areas are ring fenced. In terms of our baseline, TEO's draft budget for next year is essentially a flat cash settlement. So that really means that uh, once, uh, it really means reductions uh, because we have to take account of uh, increased uh, pay and, uh, and price costs. In terms of the headline numbers, um, the total resource budget for the department is 118.4 million, 118.4 million. And that includes some of those very specific allocations I mentioned. So there's, there's 46, 46.2 million to meet the anticipated compensation levels for the historical institutional address, or sorry, abuse address board, um, as well as other associated costs that are flowing from the inquiry. There is 6.7 million which is uh, to meet the expected implementation costs associated with victims payment scheme for permanent disablement. And that will allow the preparatory work to continue. Uh, and then there's 57.8 million, which is our baseline funding to support TEO's annual programs and projects to pick up on the salary costs and to meet the cost of our arm's length bodies. In addition then there's EU exit funding of uh, 2.7 million pounds. And there's uh, 0.8 million uh, of funding for the dedicated mechanism. There's also 4.1 million of EU match funding, which is in line with our expectations. So that's the resource budget. And you can see actually from a quick perusal of that, that our baseline is 57.8, our total budget is 118.4. So our, our budget more or less doubles when you add in all those extra elements to it. And that's a bit of a characteristic of, of TEO and that our baseline expands over the year because of the extra functions, whether they are central functions or whether they are additional tasks that we, 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 we have, we tend to expand our baseline budget quite significantly. In terms of the, the, the capital budget, that is set at 15.3 million. So the budget presents a number of challenges for us. Um, I think as the committee will be very aware, uh, TEO is responsible for delivering the executive's good relations strategy together building a united community. And that has been resourced centrally through Treasury through the shared future funding, which was provided as part of the Fresh Start Agreement. Funding has been provided at 60 million over the last five years at an average of 12 million pounds per annum. 
and that's due to end next month. And this funding has enabled significant progress to be made in communities which, which need help the most, and it's very important that this support is sustained. Unfortunately, the draft budget does not include a replacement funding stream for shared future funding, and there's simply no scope to provide replacement funding from within existing TEO budgets. So the First Minister and Deputy First Minister have uh, raised this issue and raised their concerns with the Finance Minister. Uh, uh, they wrote to him uh, a few weeks ago um, and they are currently arranging a, a meeting to discuss this issue uh, with him. In relation to the, the Victims Payment Scheme for Permanent Disablement, um, the committee again will be aware that uh, there's been 6.7 million has been provided to allow for implementation costs, but there's no specific funding for any actual payments to, to meet the costs of the actual payments to victims. Our baseline funding has been maintained at last year's level of, of 57.8 million. So there's no uplifts provided for pay or inflation, as I mentioned earlier, and that will be a challenge. So we'll have to manage that while, while trying to safeguard our program delivery as far as we can. In terms of the capital allocation, which is 15.3 million, that's a 2.8 million decrease when compared to last year's allocation of 18.1. Um, it's expected that this allocation will allow the department to continue its work on the regeneration of Ebrington, to provide important investment in urban villages, and to ensure that essential health and safety works are carried out on the MLKDC site. So that, that's the current budget position. Those are the various challenges that uh, present, and we'll obviously be keeping the budgetary position of the department under close scrutiny over the coming weeks uh, and months. So I hope I didn't throw too many figures at the committee there, Chair, and you were able to get down the key, the key points, and I'm happy to take any questions that, that you and members uh, would have. Okay, thank, thank you very much, Mark. That That's appreciated, and, um, you know, I, I always appreciate as well the position that, that um, officers are, are, are put in, uh, in in various times. And look, maybe just to comment widely, uh, more widely on it, the, the fundamental basics of a democracy is based on checks and balances. And one of the most key balances that can be checked on is how the public purse is spent. Uh, and one of the uh, weaponries that there is in keeping those checks is that the committees scrutinise the departmental spending because we get the budget and we can see the one page that's contained within the budget that has all of those headline figures of what's been spent, but it's literally drilling down into the detail and saying, what is the 6.7 million been spent on? What is the 0.8? How has that been passed out? Who is it that's been employed? It's that really finer, granular detail that the committee has to be able to move into. And nobody else does that. There's going to be no other elements of the checks and balances that gets in to the level of detail that we do. And the bottom line is that this budget is going onto the floor of the Assembly next week, and we're not going to have had that level of detail because the paper hasn't been presented. And that leaves us at a deficit. Uh, and, and this will have to be raised next week because uh, of not getting it. Again, I understand that it's not you that's withholding that paper from us. Uh, but could I ask you, just within the department, what is the, the formulation of the paper that we haven't received today? Where, how does a, the department form that? Is that? I mean, there was a submission that went, obviously, to the Department of Finance 
quite a number of months ago at this stage. Uh, and that is the, the genesis of the paper that we should be receiving today. So how is it can be submitted to the Department of Finance, but it can't be given to, to us as the scrutinising committee? Where is that little bit of paper of that report currently sitting and what prevents it from getting to here? Well, Chair, we, we, we did send a, a, a general um, paper to the Department of Finance setting out what our needs uh, were for the coming year. Uh, and we then got the, the, the budget uh, allocation. Uh, and and, and um, we, we have been looking at that budget allocation. And uh, obviously, there's still some bits of it that, that are, 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 we hope, under negotiation, such as the shared future element here. Uh, and um, it's, it's when, when, when we... we we are clear about what the, uh, our final allocation is that we'll have to take the hard uh, decisions about where the allocations of funding actually go. And we have, we have been looking at various scenarios uh, at, at the moment. But re really, that, that outline that I gave you in my comments um, comprised the, the, the large bulk of the paper you would have received in any case. There are just a couple of sensitive issues where there were some particular points that had to be expressed in a particular way and agreement wasn't wasn't reached on those. So I would want to assure the committee there's, 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 there's nothing significant uh, uh, and there's nothing substantial that that I haven't touched on and that I'm sure that there's nothing there either that the committee won't be able to raise and I hope I'll be able to answer um, in the course of this meeting. But I, I do appreciate that the committee expects to, uh, a paper to be here, and, and I, I would have liked to have been in that position, but unfortunately I'm not. Okay, well, look, again, I, I hear what you're saying, but you know, I wonder was the, the, the detail that was missed when it came to the RHI scandal in the small bulk, and that's why it's grand for us to get the large bulk of information, but the purpose of a committee is to be able to examine all of the bulk uh, and all of the detail, uh, and, and that's why next week it will be incumbent upon me to say in that debate that we haven't been given the information. And I know, Mark, that you have strived to give us as much of the detail as you possibly can, and, and that is a but the ministers need to be signing off on it. Is some bits of information that's outstanding. I think it's better for to say some elements are outstanding, but here is. But just to simply give us nothing uh, is always a concern. But maybe if I move to the victim's pension uh, element that you've mentioned there, could I ask two questions? Number one, where are we in, in, in the scheme of trying to determine how much it's going to cost? You know, ha, has that work been continuing in terms of trying to run models or, uh, you know, are we still in the realms of we won't know until it opens how much it's going to cost? Well, Charles, there's been quite a lot of work uh, has, has been going on. Um, as I've, as I've briefed the committee before, this is work that we would have expected to have been done uh, when the policy was being determined. That's the time normally this work is done in the form of a business case to support the policy and to support the legislation that is brought forward. And that should have been done by NIO. And that point was made uh, at the time to NIO that that should have been done. And, and a detailed business case wasn't provided. So that has meant when the... Uh, legislation was uh, uh, passed and we were asked to, or 
required legally to implement it. Um, that has meant that we've been looking to see, well, what, what are the costs associated with that? Uh, to understand fully the, the, well, to understand the policy in full, to understand who's eligible and then to work through from that the numbers and then the costs. So I've been, th I've been through this with the committee before, so I won't rehearse all of the detail uh, of that. But we have been working as best we can across all the sources that we can find. We've been in touch with the MOD. We've been in touch with um, consultant psychiatrists at, at, at Queen's who, who are experienced in the whole area of psychological uh, injury. We've been in touch with the police uh, and, and we've been in touch with other, other, other sources, with victims groups, all to try and get the best picture we can of all the various uh, uh, constituent parts that will be uh, able to apply to the scheme. Uh, and we've made the best estimates that we can around those. Um, in doing that, um, some figures are firmer than others. Some we have had to make assumptions as, as, as best we can. And so we, we have produced a, a range of assumptions uh, and, a, and we've collect, collated a range of figures for the constituent groups, which we have then made available to the Government Actuaries Department or GAD. Now GAD then take the assumptions that we give them and they run them through their models because they have whole life models. So they estimate how long people are going to live and they can put in various assumptions or, uh, that, that we give to them. Uh, about things like, for example, how many people will take up a lump sum or won't take up a lump sum uh, and so forth. And so they take our figures, take our assumptions, run them through their models, and they have produced a range of costings. And those are the broad figures that you heard recently uh, in response to some of the questions in the Assembly on Monday and which form part of the discussions with the Secretary of State. So um, in broad terms, <clears throat> The, the the range of costs that we have identified on the different assumptions are from um, <clears throat> the sort of lower or conservative estimate, somewhere around about 600 million, to uh, a central yeah. estimate yeah. Of, a, of around 850 million. Um, yeah. up to a, a, an upper figure, we think, would be in the region of 1.2 billion. Now, that doesn't take account of administrative costs. Uh, we reckon uh, administration costs could be somewhere in the region of about 40 million over the first five years. And after that, the thing steps down because we, you, need, you need a smaller admin uh, function to, to maintain the scheme as it goes on. But because the bulk of payments have been made, that can be scaled down. We haven't costed the detail of that particular element. So that's where we are, Chair. We have, we have done significant work on costs. Um, I know that following the, the discussion with the Secretary of State, there was some uh, additional uh, analysis that has been asked for, and, that's, and, and, and we're discussing that at the moment. Okay, thank you for that. I, I'm sure the government's actuary department are excited about being in the limelight. I'm sure they're a department that's not very often referred to. But um, and I suppose look, I, I this scheme starts to move. You're not going to work out how big a movement it's actually going to be, and therefore they are estimates. But I suppose it's maybe just putting on record that sense of being still somewhat concerned that they're so vast a range there that that could fall anywhere. And now just in terms of maybe a smaller question, um, look, we know there was a meeting yesterday. Uh, the sounding seemed to be that the that there was no uh, determinations from that meeting. Uh, however, being involved in top processes in Northern Ireland, you know that it's not over until it's over and there's still a little time for that. But is there a plan B that this scheme can commence on the day that it needs to commence as is defined in law. Uh, you know, that legal ruling is there. These people need these payments. Is this able to start regardless of where the money comes from, albeit that that then becomes the next issue of where the money comes from? 
Well, Chair, the, the, the legal judgment has made clear that uh, when determinations are made, uh, victims have uh, a legal right to that payment. So those payments will have to be made. And first and deputy first have, have made clear that that will happen. Um, and uh, the issue remains as to where the funding comes from. But that's something that has been part of the discussions, as you, as you say, with the Secretary of State. In terms of uh, a date for opening, that actually um, will be determined in terms of um, the, the, the preparations for, for the scheme and when the scheme is ready to open. Uh, and it, 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 the, the legal date for that actually follows on from uh, a, a pub publication of an announcement in the Belfast Gazette, uh, and then it, it follows within a certain number of days after. That's the legal way in which it happens. But the important thing is to, is, is, is to determine what the date is. Then it goes into the Belfast Gazette, and that's the legal point which the, the, the scheme opens for applications. And then determinations will flow as quickly as they are made. So obviously there's work to be done. The applications will come in. There's evidence that needs to be collected. Uh, there's some evidence that will need to be substantiated. There's decisions that need to be taken by the panel and then determinations made. And you'll be familiar about the process from the HIA um, where you have to go through us. Now, the HIA was fairly quick and the first uh, uh, determinations were made within six or seven weeks. This one has more difficulties, I think, associated with it. Uh, there's, 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 there's more uncertainty. So it may take a little bit more time for the first determinations to, 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 to come through, but well, that will depend a lot on the, the quality of the information the applicant's able to apply uh, and how complicated the actual cases turn out to be. And that's what's very hard to actually determine. Okay, Mark, thank you for, for that. Can I uh, move then to the Deputy Chair, to, to Doug Beatty, if we could bring Doug up into the spotlight, and then uh, Doug can ask his questions there. Go ahead, Doug. Thank you, um, Chair and Mark. Thank you for that. Can I just carry on the theme a little bit, please, of, of what the Chair started? Um, because I, I'm with him. I mean, the, the, the costs that we're talking about here are so vast and such a wide range of $600 million to $1.2 billion. Um, it's it's a staggering. So we're really saying twenty million a year, um, or forty million a year. That's that's the, the figure that we're talking about here. Um, you mentioned some assumptions. Can can we see those assumptions? Are we allowed to see those assumptions? Can can we be given a copy uh, of those assumptions so we can see where we're getting them from? Because people keep throwing MOD uh, as one of those major assumptions, um, but they're not putting in the mitigating factors of the various different pension schemes of the armed forces. Um, so is there any way we can get a hold of those assumptions? Well, Doug, I'll, I'll need obviously to clear with ministers the, the, the um, um, making available the detail of those. However, I can talk you through what some of those main assumptions are because there are there are a number of key things that come into play. I mentioned before there, there are issues about well, just how many people are there out there. Um, in the various categories, you know, in terms of those who are who are severely physically disabled, permanently disabled, we're reasonably clear about the numbers because most of them are already receiving services from the victims and survivors uh, uh, service. Um, big unknown is the psychological injuries, and that's what is a significant change to what was originally in the Stormont House Agreement. Now, and uh, so trying to work out how many people there are who have a qualifying psychological injuries is extremely difficult. There's no clear picture there. Now, we have worked with Kieran Mulholland, who's a consultant psychiatrist at Queen's, uh, who's done work in this area, and he's worked from population studies of how many people have presenting with, with, with mental illness and tried to work that down. 
to uh, those that, that would be permanent and those that would have arisen from the troubles. And he has given us the range of figures that we have got, somewhere between three and a half and 7,000. Now, uh, um, the, the, the issue then is, well, how many of those will actually come forward? Uh, and, and when they come forward, how many of them will qualify? And one of the other key things about this scheme, which again is is a a, a change in the final scheme, uh, is is a degree of disablement that is required, the threshold that's required to receive a payment. I mean, the original advice from from the commissioner was uh, way back in 2014 was that the the, the level should be set somewhere around 40% disablement. That then changed when there was later advice given to say, well, it could be lower, and victims groups wanted wanted it to be lower, uh, and in the, in in the final. Um, uh, decisions taken by the Secretary of State, the, the lower threshold is 14%. So there could be significant numbers of people will come in with a potential uh, permanent disablement of a psychological type of 14%. And that's a significant driver here in the cost, the sheer number of people that could come forward in that way. You mentioned the thing about army, army pensions. The issue there um, is that while it's unlikely those that have served in the services would qualify themselves because they're already receiving other, other pensions and it's likely to exceed what is available. But the point is that the, the provisions for passing this on for 10 years to your dependents or, or to, to your spouse or to a carer are more generous than the other, the other provisions. And that's what that's where the eligibility comes in for the service personnel and, and for the police. Um, that it's, a, it's a, that passing on of the entitlement. Uh, so if they sign up in their own right and, are, and qualify, they themselves won't receive any funding. But, but when they die, they can pass on 10 years entitlement to their dependents. And that's where that issue comes in. So that, so the numbers that, that are there, we, we spoke to the MOD, we couldn't get any figures that made any sense that, that would have enabled us to make uh, an assessment on that basis. And we had to look at, at, at other sources of doing that. Um, so what, what we did there actually was we looked at, um, we knew how many service personnel have been killed during the troubles, or we had reasonable figures around that. And we said, well, is there any ratio between those that are killed and those that are injured? And we applied the same sort of ratio that, that, that we knew was present for civilian deaths to civilian injuries and we applied that to the service personnel and we used a couple of different assumptions around that but that gave us some sense of how many service personnel might, might be eligible so there is an example of some of the assumptions that that, that are in there the other one that's important um, is how how many people will take a lump sum of 10 years payments up front rather than take the lifetime payment and that makes a big difference. So we model a couple of different assumptions around that. Um, and it's hard to know. We went for a high one, a medium, and a low one. And, and our central estimate is based on the, on, on, on the sort of middle estimate there. Um, and that can make a difference of, of over, over the lifetime of the scheme, which is up to 80 years. Uh, now, the payments were very low in the last lot of years, but it could be as long as that. Uh, it can make a difference of three or 400 million pounds. Uh, depending how many opt for that, as opposed to the pension, so that gives you a sense. It's 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 partly about the numbers. Uh, it's partly about how many come forward. It's partly about the level of awards that are made. But it's also about the choices that people that are open to people and, and that they can make within the scheme. And we won't know until people start to make those choices what sort of pattern is going to uh, emerge from that. So I hope that's given you a bit, a bit of a flavour, Doug, of the sort of things we've had to deal with. It, it, it does, Mark, and, and you know what? I would, I'd really love to, to see those assumptions laid out. I really would, and I hope you can get us some because I think it's 
is really important because, I mean, t- t- picking up on two of the things that you said, I mean, the psychological injuries, you're right, by dropping it down to 15%, it looks like you've just opened it really, really wide. But but the issue is still in the title of the scheme, and that is a Troubles Permanent Disablement Scheme. So 15% doesn't sit on its own. It's 15% that is a permanent disablement. So it probably narrows it down far more than people realize. And the second thing is, and, and, I, and I'm sure I raised this before, and and I need to go back and check my facts on this, Mark. But the MOD pension schemes are all life schemes. So they get passed on to the spouse for whole life, not 10 years, for a whole life. So I'm slightly, I wouldn't mind just engaging with that a little further. That's why I'm asking for the assumptions, just so I, I, can, I can better understand them, because it is such a vast amount of money that we're talking about here. And because we're talking about it in that higher range, I, I, I guess... There's a there's a fear in every department that we're saying this is such a huge amount of money nobody wants to pay for it and that's not good for for, for anybody but I accept what you've said, um, uh, Mark and, and I'll leave that up there if I can but can I just ask one other question just uh, in regards to the funding for the Office of Identity Cultural Expression um, could, do you have a, how much has been set aside for the creation of that uh, and specifically for the creation of of the, t- the two important parts of that, that's the Irish Language Act and the Ulster Scots thingy, Majigga? Well, the um, the current position on that, sorry, just to finish your previous point, the, the, the permanent point is absolutely critical in victim's payments, and that message has to be got out. That's why we, we are referring it to, 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 to as a victim's payments a permanent disablement uh, scheme, because we need to get that point across to, pay, to pay people. And we did follow up when you raised the issue about the pensions last time, and we've checked and we've confirmed that our assumptions are correct. But no, we're happy to look at that again, just in case there's anything that, that we've missed. In terms of the Office of Identity and Cultural Expression, um, there's not likely to be significant spend in this coming year because there needs to be legislation uh, brought through and it will take uh, uh, at least a year to get to get the legislation through um, because the, the while the bills were appended to NDNA, they, they need to be finalised and then they need to be brought through the various stages within the Assembly. So the reality is that after that legislation, if that legislation comes through quickly, uh, there's going to be a period of time then uh, for... Um, uh, actually setting up the office. So the reality is there's not really going to be any expenditure or very little expenditure uh, on those offices over the next year because it's going to take that time to get the legislation through and get all the appointments made and get the things set up. So we're really talking about the following year and uh, in the, the next mandate in many in many ways. Is that, is that fair? It, it does depend on when the legislation, how quickly the legislation goes through, but there's going to be a period after that, Doug, before you can actually make appointments and actually set the office up. So it, it has to be, there's a logical sequence there, so it's going to take that time. Good man. Mark, thank you, and good luck with your new job. Okay, thanks very much, Doug. Okay, thank you, Doug. And if we could ask now for Pat Sheehan to be brought up into the spotlight, and while Pat's coming up, if I could just encourage any other members that do want to uh, speak, if they want to use the raise hand function, just so that I can see that they're ready to ask a question, and in that, we'll pass over then to Pat. Thank you, Chair. Uh, Thanks, Mark. Um, And uh, can I offer my best wishes to you as well in your new role? Uh, we'll probably be bumping into each other at some time. Yes, I gathered that. <laughs> so um, just uh, sticking for a minute with the victim's payment stuff, and what, what would the funding implications be in the first three to four years if, if people decided to take lump sums? Have you any idea on that? 
I think you're on mute there, Mark, maybe. Sorry, sorry, I apologize. <laughs> I keep forgetting about that. Um, part of the scheme, Pat, is, is, is that in order to get backdating to the Stormont House Agreement, you have to apply within the first three years. That's what's set out in the regulations. So we do expect, therefore, that, that people will apply quickly in those first three years. Um, and uh, given that they, if they apply early and they therefore qualify for the backdating, and if there are significant numbers who decide to go for a lump sum, uh, it is likely that a significant proportion of the costs will occur in the first period. Now, um, whether it's the first three years, because it's not likely to be exactly the first three years because it'll take some time for the application to work their way through the panel and for determinations to be made. So it could stretch uh, over slightly longer than the first three years, but there will be significant costs up front. And then we expect that to drop down to a, a much lower and consistent level over for the rest of the scheme. Uh, in terms of the costs uh, broadly um, around that, um, Talking in the, in the, in the, uh, the matter of several hundred million pounds. Hmm. Uh, that's very significant, and given uh, that the, the the British government thus far hasn't committed to funding this scheme uh, to any extent at all, uh, all that would have to be taken out of the black grant over the next two or three years, presumably. Well, certainly the the, uh, the 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 current position is that it will have to be paid in the block grant, and the issue is whether or not any additional funding comes from the treasury into the block grant to to allow for that. But one way or another, it will come out of the block grant. That's because the executive office has to pay it. It's a legal entitlement to victims, so that's where it has to come from. The issue is whether there's any as I say, any any funding coming from the treasury to help to um, to to meet the costs. Yeah, and. I mean, uh, I'm just thinking, I suppose I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I mean, it'll be disastrous for the finances here. I mean, you, you can think of how much is going to be stripped out of the the health budget, the education budget and so on if, uh, if the Treasury doesn't pony up. Well, obviously, it has implications if 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 the block grant uh, isn't isn't any larger and there's a legal entitlement, then that has quite obvious implications, and that's been part of the discussions that uh, ministers have been having with with the Secretary of State recently, and, and and which are continuing. Okay, well, we'll we'll see how those discussions develop. I wanted to go on to one since we're talking about funding being uh, cut or not being available. The good relations funding uh, is going to create serious problems for a number of the executive office projects, uh, not least at TBOC. Uh, w what other programs are going to be affected? Will any of the other ALBs be affected? Will there be job losses if that funding isn't restored? Well, the, the, there's £12 million pound of good relations funding, um, which covers a range of, of actions across a range of departments. It's not all the executive office. There are seven headline actions, uh, and five of those are, are taken forward by other departments, and two of them are taken forward by the executive office, and that's the Urban Villages Scheme uh, and the TBUC Camps. Then there's other funding that comes out of that uh, £12 million to support uh, 
the uh, the Central Good Relations Fund, which is the fund that all the various groups apply to to support their their good relations uh, projects. So it have a significant effect uh, there. Um, there are also implications for staffing in the department because uh, a significant number of staff in that area in the department uh, are funded out of that. 12 million program. We have some baseline that we have staff funded out of, but we also have staff funded out of the, the particular programs that they are helping to deliver. So there would be implications there for staff uh, in the department. Uh, and obviously, if the schemes don't run, uh, when there are other agencies who are delivering the schemes for us, for example, TBUC camps are delivered by the Education Authority on our behalf. So it, it would have implications then for the staff in the, in the Education Authority who would be delivering those kinds of programs. Uh, so there would be significant implications, uh, both in terms of the activity that we're taking forward, the fact that this is a flagship program for the executive office, and there would be implications for staffing. And that's why First and Deputy First have or have been making representations to the the, um, the finance minister, and uh, I think are, are are hoping to meet him shortly, uh, just to 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 discuss the implications, Pat, with him. Okay, so so the implications aren't good, and in your own. Opinion? Do you think is there is there any expectation that this funding will be replaced? Well, that's very hard for me to say, Pat. But what I, all I can say is that the first and deputy first have, have made clear their commitment to the TBOT program and to the Good Relations program. Uh, they have already written to the, the the finance minister, setting out their concerns around this and the importance of this continuing. And I would expect that to be pressed very strongly in any meeting that they would have. Okay. Okay. Thanks for that. And just finally, one final question: uh, in terms of uh, an EQIA of the budget, uh, my understanding is uh, there wasn't one carried out. Is that right? Well, what what we have done is is an initial quality screening to uh, identify where the potential implications are, and we're still finalising that. I think where we get a clearer idea uh, of the need for an equality impact assessment is when decisions are made about actual allocations. Uh, and things like the the point you've just you've just identified, Pat, whether or not that income stream for shared future funding is there or isn't, would be an important part of that of that assessment. So there's still the potential for an EQIA to be carried out. We're still working on that. Yes, there's we're still in discussion with ministers on that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks for that. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Chair. Okay. Thank you, Pat. Um, thank you, Mark. I see you. Already looking at the budget implications for EA in that answer there. I see you more in depth. You noticed that? I sense that. Um, but as it's youth service, I'll certainly back up 100% everything that there is in ensuring that funding continues. Um, okay, look, if we could ask next for Trevor, to, Trevor Lum to come up into the spotlight and we'll get Trevor to ask his questions, please. Yes, thank you, Chair. And Mark, congratulations from the independent sector as well. It's good to see Thanks, you going to education, my old committee, which I was very fond of. Um, I'm sorry to go back to victims' pensions. I'm sure you are too. But uh, considering the impasse that there is between the executive and the Secretary of State and the fact that we've had now a Supreme Court ruling that the executive has to pay for this money, which, which they don't have, and given what you said about upfront payments in the first two or three years, uh, it, it just seems to be an impossible situation. Is there any further that this, this whole process has to go in legal terms, or is that judgment that was handed down the end of it, do you think? 
Well, the, the, the initial judgment made it clear that there was a legal entitlement and that the executive office would have to meet that. And the executive office obviously have to meet it out of his budget on behalf of the executive. The executive office itself couldn't possibly meet the, the, the payments that are required. But the legal entitlement is there. And both First and Deputy First Minister and indeed the Secretary of State have made it clear that victims will receive their payments. And that, that, that flows from that initial judgment. Um, there is a further um, uh, hearing that will take place uh, early in March. Um, the judge had given time for some discussion to be had around the whole funding issue, uh, and the JR has been taken around the certainty of funding. So, um, if, there, if if that 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 would be the next legal stage where uh, the judge could has indicated that he would join the Department of Finance uh, at the next stage. Um, if the funding issue hadn't been uh, agreed, and it'll be up to the judge to decide what what he he determines at that point, Trevor. But um, yeah, but but it's, it's they, difficult. It's a difficult issue. It, uh, it's certainly that okay, but it's it's not getting any closer to solution. That's what worries me. I mean, if this this goes back to the judge in what a week or two now, um, he'll be expecting solutions or not not proposals. And uh, there, there is no solution here. The, 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 the Stormont executive doesn't have the money to come up with, let's say, three hundred million pounds to cover the cost of this scheme in the first couple of years. British government is absolutely adamant that they're not going to fund it. So it's hard to see how they would suddenly magically improve or increase the amount of the block grant to cover it when they've actually said they won't. I don't see how they can, can disguise it in any way. They either have to pony up, as uh, Pat said, or else you really have a very serious legal impasse. And I wonder, I wonder who's the winner in terms of a dispute between two governments and the Supreme Court. Well, I think it's, it's a high court, Trevor, rather than, rather than the Supreme Court. But um, the... the, the there have been there has been that meeting with the Secretary of State that initial meet, meet, meeting. There's going to be a further. Uh, my understanding is that there, there there will be further meetings. There's been some additional work has been asked for. So there is a process ongoing. Our ministers uh, are engaged with uh, the Secretary of State. So there is a process ongoing, uh, and we'll have to see what what actually comes out of that. But. You're right. It's a pressing issue, and I think First and Deputy First Minister have indicated just how important uh, an issue it is for them. But they have emphasised, uh, in line with the judgment, that uh, that uh, victims will receive their payments. Um, but clearly, whatever comes out of the negotiations is going to have implications, one way or another. Yeah. So well, I don't. I'm, I'm finished, really, Chair. But I don't see much comfort for the victims in any of this. You know, it's just it's a standstill and a standoff. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Thanks, Mark, and good luck in your new position. Thanks, Trevor. You're getting out just in time, I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Trevor, Trevor, careful. Uh, okay, <laughs> thank you very much for that, Trevor. Okay, if we could next uh, bring um, Martina Anderson up into the spotlight. And um, maybe, Martina, just before you start, maybe I should have said it under Chairman's remarks, but just to, to set the stage, I, I saw media reports that you were subjected to an awful lot of value uh, abuse online and I just wanted on behalf of the committee to say that we were all I'm sure in solidarity with that politicians should not have to tolerate abuse 
when they're going about um, their public duties. And I know that um, yesterday there were several political offices, including Nicola Mallins, that were that were targeted. And um, just to call that out and say that it's not acceptable, uh, and just maybe to extend yourself our best wishes on being on the receipt of that. So, but I'll pass you over for your questions now. Thank you, Chair, and thank you for that solidarity. And, and obviously, we would all send the same to Nicola and others. No one in public life or any other uh, form of life should have to face or put up with this, and it is right to, to call it out. I want to say to, to Mark uh, that not having a paper in front of us, uh, it's going to be a very hard act for someone to follow, uh, to be able to present as you did today and what you've always been able to do at times when we haven't had a paper to at least to give us a picture of what we're facing. But I do concur with what the chair and what Pat said about the need for us to have papers in front of us so that we can interrogate and do our role, uh, our scrutinising role properly. I think it is time that, that the British government acted to pay for the pension scheme um, that it's created so that victims uh, don't have to face any further delay um, a lot of the other members have asked the questions uh, that I was looking answers for, so you were able to provide those. Can, um, can I take you back to some of the comments that you made, just picking up what Pat was saying and others in relation to the TBOC, the TBOC scheme and the urban villages and all the other schemes? And you talked about the Shared Prosperity Fund. Now, whilst the Joint First Ministers are going to the Finance Minister, is it my understanding that this funding has not actually continued by the British government? That, for instance, in New Decade New Approach, we were promised funding and then we were promised Shared Prosperity funds to uh, to meet the EU uh, gap that we would the funding gap that would be created would be dragged out of the EU. So is this funding is the British government stopped the funding like you said it ends next month. Uh, have they not continued to pay for it as the suggestion was that they would? Uh, I think maybe we're getting mixed up uh, between two things that sound very much the same. The shared prosperity fund that you're talking about, but the funding I was talking about is shared future funding, which is which is different. Now, there are some similarities in one sense in that the shared future funding was the product of the Fresh Start Agreement. So it was a, an agreement between the two governments and it was uh, of 60 million for five years. And that was the agreement that that was being provided. It was provided as part of the agreement and it was earmarked specifically for good relations. So that is what has come to an end. And we always knew it was coming to an end uh, and we have been flagging it. We've been flagging this for some time that there needs to be a replacement stream of funding. Um, so um, that's why we are, we are, we are, our ministers are now pushing to make sure that that uh, replacement funding is provided. I had thought my understanding had been in terms of the shared uh, that shared future fund that you talk about that uh, that there was an expectation the British government would maybe continue that in new decade new approach um, and then as you say separately to that we have the shared prosperity fund where we were told we were going to get funding and that hasn't come about given the uncertainty that we have at the moment because as you say we don't know what is going to be funded yet. But I would um, like to just put on record, uh, Chair, that we certainly would like to see a full equality impact assessment done of this budget uh, for the TEO. So um, I know that some departments are dealing with what they call high-level impact assessments or high-level screening and being screened out. And I would just like to put down a marker 
that um, before any such decision was taken like that, Chair, that we as a committee had an opportunity to once again engage with whoever's going to replace you, Mark. And hopefully, Mark, by that stage, we'll have papers in front of us that we can actually read and uh, understand as opposed to having to jot down all the figures as you're shouting them out. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Martina. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Martina. I think that's the um, last question, last person that's indicated to speak, Mark. So um, you're more or less off the hook at this stage. Okay. Uh, to ask a question. Could Chris tell yeah. the question? Uh, okay, he hasn't indicated, but that's perfectly fine. Come on ahead, Christopher, if you want to come up into the spotlight to ask a question. I, I messaged you and was waving furiously at you. I'm still on the I wanted to ask about, um, you would have seen the comments um, today, I think it was uh, from uh, the Secretary of State, in relation to uh, the victims' um, funding. Uh, it is clear from what he is saying that they are, the NIO seem pretty immovable on this subject. I wonder, could you just speak to that and indicate? I know obviously there may be discussions still ongoing, but I mean, I do think it is, um, frankly, a, a ridiculous position that the Secretary of State has adopted in terms of uh, the approach that he has taken, you know, devising a scheme and then refusing to fund it. Uh, you know, devising a scheme when we were in a period of direct rule and then refusing to put the funding for it on the table. I'm just wondering, could you provide an update, Mark, just where those discussions are at? Because I am mindful of the fact that they have been going on for quite some time now. And if he's talking to the media, basically saying that the finance minister's position is untenable in terms of funding for this, it doesn't indicate that the discussions are going particularly well. Thanks, Christopher, for that. Um, well, well, the first thing is the discussions are still ongoing. Um, I think... I, I made the point before that the um, the responsibility of determining costs and looking at um, putting up a business case rests with the body that is bringing forward the proposals. And in this case, it was the the NIO and it was the Secretary of State. Uh, and in bringing those, our our minister's case is that in bringing those forward, uh, while there were elements of that that obviously local parties would have supported. There were significant departures or significant decisions that were made by the Secretary of State, which in turn have implications for costs. Uh, the difficulty was that those weren't really bottomed out when the policy was being determined because a full business case wasn't done. So the reality is that this legislation was made without full awareness of what the potential implications of the costs were. Then when this, and this point was, was, was made clear during the process to NIO that a business case ought to, ought to have been prepared. There were some high level costings prepared, but it wasn't a business case and it didn't go into the level of detail it should have. So when this came across for implementation, the legal duty on, on TEO, our first job was to try and work out, well, well, how much is this actually going to cost? Who's eligible? And I explained some of the stuff that we have gone through. Now, I think part of the reason why there hasn't been more detailed engagement with the SOS earlier, I mean, our ministers have been seeking for a, a meeting. The Secretary of State have been asking about the costs. Well, we've been working to try and get the cost. We would have expected to have come with the policy, uh, but we've been working on the way I described, uh, to, to pull the information together to cost as best we can, and that has then formed the basis of that initial discussion that there was with the Secretary of State uh, uh, yes, 
yesterday. So um, again, there's been some further analysis has, has been asked for. So the the, the process is still in, in play. Uh, and we'll have to see just how that plays itself out. And there are elements of it. You're absolutely right. There are elements of it that I actually I, I do welcome and think that uh, are an improvement. But I, I, I think it's it's offhand and aloof to seek to give us a new policy framework during a period of direct rule without the relevant funding to deliver that. And I understand, you know, the thinking at Westminster may well have been. You know, while we were in the period of direct rule to use the occasion to break the log jam, just like they, they used the occasion um, to impose different policy frameworks on us, some of which I really, really don't agree with. Um, but I think um, if it's going to incur cost, then, as you say, the people that are advising the policy are going to have to stump up for it. And I think his comments today were very discouraging in that regard. Um, so when do you think that these discussions, and <laughs> Trevor Lund's right, you're getting off the Department of Education right about the right time, but when do you think these discussions will be brought in for a landing and brought in for a conclusion? Well, Christopher, I'm not sure I can give you any sort of definitive answer on, on that. That's really going to depend on the parties involved. All I can say is that uh, there were these initial discussions, which is encouraging. Um, there's been some work asked for, uh, which and officials are engaging on that, and we'll make that available as soon as possible. So uh, that, that should pave the way for any further discussions. And there is, of course, uh, at, in, in the background there is the judgment uh, of the next stage of the judicial review which is which is which is which is due in early march so there is a pressure here for decisions to be taken okay that's good thanks mark thank you and good luck in your new role thanks very much christopher uh, and i'm sure there will be problems in DA. i don't i'm not yet aware of so i don't think i'm escaping <laughs> <laughs> oh i i'd say you're well aware of what the problems are and, <laughs> and that lie ahead of you i'm sure they're there are many folds. Look, one quick final question, Mark, was something that I wanted to cover. Um, I, I just note from the departmental budgets that there is a considerable amount of spend for during March. Uh, I think it's listed at like 22 million of resource and 35 capital. Is that is that something that you're going to be able to deliver on? Or is that something that, is that a planning? Is that the way things are laid out so that, that then it carries over into the next year? Or is that stuff that's been handed back in January monitoring already? But where are we with those figures? Well, I make some general comments, and I don't know if either of my colleagues want to come in on the on the specifics. But uh, every year, we we try and 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 work to ensure we have a more even pattern of spend. And no matter how we do that, it's and particularly with capital projects, it seems to be that you always end up that a lot of completion of capital projects, whether it's purchase of sites or whether it's 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 various forms of expenditure, tend to be concentrated in the last quarter. I don't know whether it's the deadline of end year that, that focuses minds or, 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 or what the reason is. But, but we can't carry this money over. We don't have that sort of flexibility to carry over. That's why there's always that rush to try and make sure that any money that we retain at that point is spent. Because we have the opportunity, obviously, during monitoring rounds before that, if we think we can't spend, and we always profile it to to release that funding. So I am aware, certainly in the capital side, that we have a number of projects, for example, on the urban villages side, um, that we're hoping to 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 make significant progress on in the next matter of weeks, and that will account for some of that spend. 
Uh, I'm not sure so much about the the resource spend. I don't know if I'm not sure if Nelia has signed or not, but whether Nelia or Tara have any perspectives that they can help uh, with on this. So, Tara, have you anything to say, or Nelia, anything to sign out to us? Is that the thing? I would just I would agree with Mark there around the capital side with the revenue side. Now um, I need to look into that and maybe get back to you on that one. Okay, okay, that's that's fine. That's fine. Thanks. Um, okay, look, folks, thank you very much indeed for for coming up. Apologies for for whatever has been the the technical problems and gremlins that have got in there, but we got round them in the end. Um, I, I wish you as well, and thank you, Mark, and wish you all the best and and. Uh, the role in education, where no doubt I will be equally as in contact with you via there as other places, but we wish you all the best in that. Thank you very much, everybody. Okay, thanks, Chair. Thanks to everyone. Okay, Bye. thank you. Uh, okay, members, I've set the wrong bit of paper down. We'll give a little moment just to reprofile the spotlight where we can get uh, Declan Kearney and um, Gary Middleton up into there. Maybe just to take the opportunity for members. Just to explain, uh, from my screen, the little bit along the top where you send messages actually fades away after a few seconds, uh, and it's only when you move the mouse that you see it. So that's why I, I really need people to use the raise hand symbol, because also when you're in the audience, I can't see you. So um, you're, you're, you can only be seen whenever you're actually in the spotlight. The so the spotlight. If Christopher Stelford was... You're, you're there, Gary, just in I'm case in. you say anything and <laughs> no, no, mention it, like I'm up in front of that whatever yeah. committee. Yeah, I can see Declan, I can see Christopher, so I'm just I'm saying yeah. Yep, perfect. Yeah. So, uh, but for, for um, as I say, for, for members, if they want to speak, if they use the raise hand function, then I can see them down the side that they've raised their hands and can call them in. Um, I think is... Uh, Minister Kearney with us by phone, maybe, is he? Or is he there by screen? No, Colin, I'm, I'm here. Uh, you're, you're there? Can you hear me? We can hear you, but we can't see you. Um, Let me see if I'm doing something wrong here. I can see all. I can see yourselves. I'm becoming an expert in uh, uh, call handling and assisting with technical problems. There could be a possibility that your camera is, is located the wrong way around and maybe looking out the back of your... Or is there something covering your camera? I don't think so, Colin. Um, let me see. We have a perfect sound of you, Declan. So we might continue because we can hear you perfectly. So uh, let me see. No, that's the camera off now, Colin. Uh, so yeah. Um, I'll put a call into an official here. They normally work the magic for me, but as long as you've got audio, let me definitely. Yeah, uh, let me try and fix the the video. Okay, that's that's great. Definitely, I'm, I'm going to start taking bets on the the fact that we'll get through a presentation here without a technical problem, but uh, we'll get this one sorted out. But look, members, we'll move on to item six, which is the Brexit oral evidence session with the junior ministers. Uh, in pages 120 to 189 of the meeting pack are the relevant papers, as well as pages 6 to 62 of the uh, tabled pack today. If I can take the opportunity to welcome Ministers uh, Middleton and Kearney along today, and also um, just to welcome Gary into his new role, uh, where he's been for a number of weeks now, and up in front of ourselves for the first time. 
uh, we wish you well in that. It's certainly not a quiet job or a, a job that doesn't have its priorities, but we certainly wish you all the very best for that as you're going forward. And uh, maybe if I can pass over to yourselves, if you want to give us a short presentation and then we'll open up the, quest the floor for questions then. Yeah, thank you, Chair. Uh, thanks, Colin. Thanks to colleagues for having us this afternoon. Um, I'll offer some remarks, uh, Colin, and then I'm going to try and see if I can get uh, the the the, uh, the video fixed. But I'll proceed for now. So thanks again for uh, having us along at committee. We welcome the opportunity to provide yourselves with a further update on EU exit matters. Uh, Colin, I want to say this at the outset. I understand that the, the committee has yet to receive uh, information that uh, I had hoped would be forthcoming from uh, since our last hearing. Uh, I've spoken with officials on two or three occasions about this, and, and I would hope to have this uh, addressed as soon as possible. Um, since we last spoke to uh, the committee, there have been a number of significant developments, uh, not least of which, of course, uh, the appointment of uh, Gary as junior minister in uh, replacement of Gordon. As set out in the previous briefing to the committee, uh, with agreement reached on the trade and cooperation agreement and key decisions on the protocol in December, the focus of our work since has been very much on operational readiness. And there are different views, of course, on the protocol and uh, on the trade and cooperation <coughs> agreement itself. However, the decisions reached did provide some certainty for businesses needed to prepare for the end of the transition period. However, while it provided some certainty, it left very little time to raise awareness and build understanding of the new requirements in moving goods or for businesses to fully prepare. So it has been challenging for businesses and communities in adapting. It's important that we recognise that and the outworking of the initial disruption following the end of the transition period. Reflecting on that, focuses continued to be on operational readiness working with businesses and officials in Dublin and Whitehall to identify and address issues, whether systemic or specific to individual traders, to better integrate systems and to engage businesses to raise awareness and compliance. This ongoing work has had a positive impact through the development of solutions in areas such as groupage, which I spoke about in our last hearing, which uh, uh, Gary is going to address in his remarks, but also in the building of relations and practical cooperation between our own officials and those in Dublin and London has been particularly important in addressing the issue of business readiness. As we highlighted in January, much of the disruption experienced at the end of the transition period was associated with a lack of preparedness on the part of uh, British-based businesses moving goods into the north. That led to some disruption in the movement of goods from Britain, with significant delays for businesses seeking to move goods through Dublin port in particular. Anecdotally, we had reports of higher volumes of empty lorries returning from Britain as businesses remained uncertain as to the new requirements which delayed movements. As part of the wider work to address that and raise awareness and compliance, the Trader Support Service has continued to deliver a number of webinars and to reach out proactively to businesses. And importantly, those seminars have included officials from Irish Revenue Commissioners and the Department of Agricultural, Food and the Marine. I understand the feedback from businesses on this has been very positive 
In addition to demonstrating a joint commitment to the importance of east-west trade, it has allowed traders to understand the requirements at every stage of the journey in moving goods between Britain and the North. As we've heard from the sector, if businesses are to be prepared, then there needs to be clarity and support to work through challenges as they emerge. The focus on operational readiness and engaging directly with business to address issues has clearly had a positive impact. By way of example, volumes through our ports have returned to levels comparable with the same period last year, and there are lower levels of turnbacks on the Hollyhead Dublin route. For instance, freight flow from Britain to the north on the 16th of February was 1% higher than the same day last year and 2% lower compared to the same day the previous week. In addition, there's been an overall decrease in the average number of HGVs arriving without the requisite paperwork at Hollyhead from a high of almost 12% back in January. That's not to say there are not continued issues and challenges. There clearly are. I set out the examples of steel and parcels during our last session. And of course, the ending of the various grace periods will also present uh, particular challenges in the coming months. And we're in a process of change and further challenges are going to emerge. A key point though, is that the collaborative approach with colleagues in Dublin and Whitehall focused on finding solutions has proved important to date in resolving the challenges and beginning to create the space to look at the opportunities which the protocol presents. That's an important point because whilst there are different views on EU exit and the protocol itself, we are committed to working together to achieve the best possible outcome for our businesses and citizens. And that requires us to focus not only on addressing the challenges, but also importantly, exploiting the opportunities. In order to do this effectively, it will be essential that we are represented appropriately in the governance structure of both the withdrawal agreement and the trade and cooperation agreement. And we will continue to emphasize this during ministerial engagements. Our officials are also engaging with uh, the British cabinet office as these new structures are developed to ensure that our interests are represented, particularly where there is a clear intersect between the operations of the protocol and the trade and cooperation agreement. As well as ensuring effective governance, it is also essential that we are legislatively on a firm foundation, not only now, but also in the coming months and years to ensure that we can in fact secure the best outcome for people here. The First Minister and the Deputy First Minister are currently considering 25 common frameworks that have received provisional confirmation from the respective JMC. Uh, and at that point, Colin, I'll conclude and hand over to Gary to make his remarks. Thank you. Thanks, Declan. And, and first of all, can I thank the Chair for his very uh, kind and warm welcome. Uh, obviously, it's uh, a delight to be here in front of the committee today. Uh, and I know that the committee has been grappling with a number of issues. And as you can see, the, the Executive Office is a very wide and um, extensive um, department. Uh, and obviously, as I say, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to get across all of that detail and, and the things have been going uh, very well so far. I want to thank uh, the committee for uh, the work that they do with ourselves as ministers and as Junior Minister Kearney has already indicated, there are differing views among 
the parties and the executive in respect of the protocol, but also in terms of the trade and cooperation agreement as well. But we are committed to working uh, together to try and get the best outcome for our citizens and for our businesses as well. Deccan has set out the context, so I'd like to now just provide you with some more of the detail on, on the operational issues that we continue to face and the, that we continue to deal with, as well as just an overview as to where we are at present and what uh, further challenges we expect to see in the coming days. Uh, as you will have heard, um, some of the main issues that we have faced uh, since the end of the transition period uh, include the lack of readiness of GB businesses and also the issue of groupage as well. First of all, on groupage, uh, this is an issue that uh, Minister Kearney and my predecessor, Junior Minister Lyons, had raised with the UK government on several occasions in January. It's something that has been raised uh, on several occasions since that as well. Uh, we were pleased to see DEFRA publish additional and new guidance on groupage, which they developed working alongside both uh, our local department of DERA here, along with industry representatives as well. So we are grateful to DERA for their work on this so far, and especially to the industry representatives. It's important that we hear from those industry uh, representatives and, and they were able to share with us their expertise uh, and took part in the trials that were held to test and of course to refine the guidance as well. So trials continue to happen. Uh, trials are continuing to ensure that any further issues are picked up and guidance will be updated as and when is necessary. We do understand that DEFRA are also preparing similar trials uh, with the Republic of Ireland to ensure that the new processes work for goods uh, which are transited through ports there. So we, we hope that that will be helpful to our businesses. Another significant issue for us in January was the lack of preparedness among businesses uh, in GB. Um, that, that, that preparedness was around the uh, new requirements and what that would mean uh, for them. So a lot of work has since gone on in trying to improve that uh, and improve the readiness of GB businesses to trade with us here in Northern Ireland. The executive ministers have raised this issue on a regular basis with the UK government and we uh, appreciate that the extensive and intensive programme of engagement that they have put in place to try and ensure that their businesses are as best prepared as they can be. Our officials have been involved as well in the UK government's senior officials business readiness group, which gets regular updates on, uh, gets regular updates and uh, discusses targeted communications from across Whitehall, including from HMRC, DEFRA, the Department for Transport, and of course, the Border and Protocol Delivery Group within the Cabinet Office. So at a ministerial level, we are continuing to attend the XO committee uh, meetings on a, on a regular basis. And we take every opportunity that we can as ministers to raise uh, the issues within that committee. We're also involved in the government's Brexit business task force, which brings together businesses, uh, officials, along with ministers, trade associations and our officials. Uh, and we have regular meetings with the Trader Support Service as well. As Junior Minister Kearney has said, the Trader Support Service are continuing to engage with businesses and figure, figures do show that the number of businesses registered with the service has increased while the number of open cases is falling. So, so that is encouraging to see. The increased uptake shows that markets' confidence in the service and the decrease in the number of open cases shows that some issues are being resolved and traders are 
getting more used to the new requirements. We continue to encourage any business who might benefit from the services offered by the TSS to register with them and we would be grateful for the assistance of members on this committee to get that information out there and ensure that businesses do avail of the support as and when they would require it. Where there has been some good news in terms of the resolution of some issues and the de decrease in cases being raised, we are very aware that there are further significant challenges coming down the line and we are continuing to focus on doing everything we can to help our businesses continue to operate in the new environment. Businesses have articulated serious concerns about the impact of uh, further charges, uh, the difficulties that that will mean, of course, for businesses and local consumers as well. Uh, for example, the committee may be aware that from uh, Monday of this week, the 22nd of February, official certification has applied in relation to movements of fresh meat, minced meat and meat preparations from GB to NA. So we will be assessing that. Obviously, it's very early days at this minute in time, but we will be assessing the impact of that uh, and what it has had on the supply of those products to our businesses here in Northern Ireland. This requirement will, of course, apply until the end of the grace period in relation to the so-called prohibitions and restrictions PNR on the 30th of June 2021, unless, and of course, an alternative can be agreed. Given the new application of certification of these products and the upcoming end of the grace period for supermarkets and their suppliers on the 31st of March, we are concerned that the official control system might be overwhelmed and there might not be sufficient veterinary capacity to provide the increased number of uh, EHC uh, certificates that will be required. Given the potential impact that this could have on the choice and the cost of food here, and we intend to continue to raise this issue with the UK government. The committee will be aware that discussions are ongoing between the UK government and the EU in relation to grace periods, not just for PNR goods, but also in terms of supermarkets, the impact on parcels and medicines as well. These discussions are also considering pet travel and solutions to enable goods to move tariff-free in line with product-specific quotas. You will also be aware that the EU Commission Vice President Mara Sefcovic met with business leaders um, and members of civic society very recently and heard firsthand some of the challenges that they were facing. So just in closing of my remarks initially, uh, the First and Deputy First Ministers are attending the meeting of the Joint Committee this afternoon, uh, as we speak in fact, and we await the outcome of that uh, and the outcome of those discussions with great interest. And of course, we will stand ready as always to do what we can to help our businesses and our citizens as well. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you very much, Minister. And I see that um, Minister Kearney is back with us. We can see him. He is, it did gallant efforts there during that. You were part of the presentation to get the camera available. So um, I, I'll maybe kick off with a couple of questions and then I have a few members that are lined up as well. So uh, maybe just to go back to something that you said there, um, Declan, at the very end, um, because it has been raised in the Welsh Assembly and also in the House of Lords, uh, and so therefore it is a matter of public record that there is a delay in developing the 26 common frameworks as part of the Brexit process, and the suggestion is that the delay is being caused by the Executive Office. So could you explain to us where those common frameworks currently are and what the holdup is um, if they have been passed everywhere else 
and they're waiting to make their way down infrastructure of the assembly to be assessed and, and what that delay is. Yes, Colin, I'm happy to come in on that particular point. If you just bear with me, I want to get some specific details for you. Uh, am I still up on camera there, Colin? Because I find good, myself yeah. uh, drifting in and out and actually wasn't sure whether I was yeah, that's uh, perfect. or not. So the position in relation to the common frameworks is that uh, following the approval by relevant portfolio ministers, the two joint ministers uh, were asked uh, to confirm 25 frameworks. And you correctly point out, as, as indicated, I think, in my remarks, that they've been provisionally confirmed by the respective uh, JMC ministers. Um, further advice was provided Two ministers on the implementation on the, on the implica implications and risks associated with the lack of executive uh, provisional agreement uh, of the common frameworks on the 8th of February. Um, so to ensure operability of the frameworks, there, there actually is a hazard uh, now that uh, the, uh, the the British, the Scottish, the Welsh governments. Uh, would pursue uh, British, uh, if you will, only frameworks rather than taking a four administration approach. And the, the, the hazard flowing from that is that that would then uh, disarm our officials' abilities uh, to exercise influence on behalf of the, the executive. So this is an issue, Colin, uh, in light of the uh, discussions in other administrations and uh, the, the fact that it has been addressed, for example, by the, the Senate, it needs to be moved through to conclusion as quickly as possible. I have raised this with officials, uh, but I regret that I'm not in a position to provide any further detail in respect of progress at today's hearing for you. It is an issue that uh, has been discussed uh, by myself on a number of occasions where we're at uh, on frameworks. The, the latest occasion was uh, Monday past. Uh, so what I can assure the uh, committee is that I will be doing everything within my influence and ability to ensure that these issues are brought to a conclusion and that we actually do in fact get ourselves into a more sustainable position in relation to the common frameworks. Okay, uh, I appreciate what you're saying there in terms of that there isn't the progress that you would like to see in, in the issue of the common frameworks. Maybe I got lost a wee bit in the detail as to what is it that's actually causing the problem. Um, is what you're saying that, I mean, I, I read the frameworks as being something that is overarching to all, uh, to England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, and that they're just approved in each. Is what you're saying that actually there may be an opportunity that a framework may be delivered in one side differently in GB from Northern Ireland and that there could be problems because of that? Well, you would not have four you would not have four a, a four administration coordination is the point that I'm making. And 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 unless we uh, move ahead at pace uh, mm -hmm. to close those issues out, then that hazard does arise that we lose influence okay. on the one hand uh, on the part of officials and secondly that uh, we would not have a coordinated four administration approach towards the common frameworks. And clearly that would not be an advantageous situation for us to find ourselves in. So is, is that basically saying, 
I'm trying to drill it down just this. We disagree with some of the frameworks and we want to sort them out. Where it's at? No, they have, they have, yeah. they have not moved through the executive office and been signed okay. off at this particular point in time, Colin. Okay. Okay. Um, clearly, clearly, maximum operability of common frameworks yeah. is in everyone's interests. Sure. Sure. Okay. Gary, you happy enough? There anything to add to that? Nothing to add other than okay. you know they are under uh, consideration, and I think that you know Declan has articulated uh, the position where um, you know if, if the other uh, nations within the UK were to move ahead, it would put us in a situation where we were would be at a disadvantage, even in terms of feeding in some of the issues. Um, uh, you know, we, we we do need to get that over the line, uh, and but as I say, we will feed back to you as and when we do get uh, confirmation that we can move forward. Okay, thank you. Um, Minister Gove wrote to Mr. Sagafitch about a few weeks ago um, and stated that he wanted to see some flexibilities, uh, flexibilities in the protocol to make it work. And he said that he was working on a list with the executive here in terms of those flexibilities. Could we get a copy of those flexibilities that have been proposed? And has there been any progress on the delivery of, of those um, flexibilities? Should I go first? Uh, either, go ahead, Declan, you're fine. Go ahead, yeah. Yes, he did. Uh, he did write, uh, Colin, and uh, the, the, the issues raised in Michael Goh's letter are uh, on the public record, so I don't see any difficulty, and uh, there, well, I, 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 I presume there is no difficulty in sharing additional information on those matters with the committee at all. Um, the uh, you'll be familiar with the chronology from the, the submission of his letter. Uh, there, there were meetings uh, subsequent to uh, to all of that, and uh, I think it's fair to say that Maros Shevchukovic uh, has uh, made it clear that the European Commission is is willing uh, to look at pragmatic uh, solutions to any difficulties that arise. But they see the address of these issues in terms of this being a two-way street. Uh, so they have they have made the point, and again, this is a, a matter of public record, that uh, they do not feel that the British government at this point in time has maximised all of the flexibilities available to it uh, within the agreement and the protocol at this particular point in time. Uh, so. In the context of a two-way street approach to addressing issues of disruption, I do think that the European Commission are open to that discussion. The Joint Committee is, is meeting today. Um, the Specialised Committee uh, met yesterday. I, I'm aware that the Specialised Committee uh, touched on a number of the uh, flexibilities uh, that were indicated in Michael Gove's correspondence. Uh, no conclusion was arrived at uh, in the specialised committee on those matters, but I'm sure that they will be uh, focused on and addressed again today in the joint committee meeting. Uh, if you're to ask me, uh, do I think that uh, the various parties to the negotiation with responsibility for implementation of both the uh, withdrawal agreement and the protocol are in solution finding mode. 
then yes, I do think that we, we have a situation now where uh, the British government has pivoted uh, since uh, we, uh, we last. In fact, I suggest you think that uh, how the protocol could uh, be smoothly operated. Um, I think that you also have within the European Commission uh, an appreciation that uh, we have experienced difficulties in the course of the last few weeks, but that these are not insurmountable. And both Michael Gove and Maros Shefakovic uh, in the uh, joint communique that was issued, and I think that was on the 3rd of February, uh, committed both the British government and the European Commission to working together closely uh, to ensure proper implementation of the protocol, uh, to ensure that the interests of all of our citizens were, were best met. And, and I actually met with Michael Gove on the following day, and I said that I thought that the tone of the uh, communique uh, was correct. And, uh, and set the right acoustics in place for the follow-up engagement between the two delegations from the British government and the European Commission that followed uh, in, in the following week, the subsequent week. So there's been fair, a fair degree of engagement in the period since both at delegation level, we now have a joint committee meeting today. I think that's the context, that's the space within which uh, those issues now need to be addressed. But I, I do think that uh, we will we will continue to hear that uh, the address, the resolution of those issues is very much to be found within the framework of the protocol and on the basis that uh, the, the two principal sides both need to be working together and making use of the various measures available to them. I hope that's useful. Okay, thank you. Gary, do you want to yeah. add anything? Well, yes, um, obviously you will have seen, no doubt, the, the list of issues which um, the the Chancellor um, of the Duchy of Lancaster had put into his letter, obviously to Sefcovic. Uh, a number of them refer to uh, obviously extending the grace periods, um, trying to find a permanent solution for uh, PNR goods as well, um, extending temporary arrangements for parcels, medicines. The difficulty with that, and uh, again, there's obviously not a common shared view on this, uh, but. You know, we would feel that you know a temporary uh, sticking plaster type approach to these issues isn't going to be sustainable in the long term. Uh, when we speak to businesses, the main concern that we we would get from them is it's not even now in terms of clarity. It's it's a matter of change, and we have to recognise that um, there there are difficulties here which are way beyond uh, teething problems alone. Uh, I do welcome the engagement that's ongoing between the CDL. Uh, and the EU as well. Uh, obviously, there have been numerous engagements, uh, many of which that myself and, and Junior Minister Kearney uh, would have attended, and, and that is useful. But we do need to get to a point where there is a clear recognition of the real detrimental impact that the protocol is currently having on businesses here in Northern Ireland. And I think that until we get to that position or that recognition, I think it is going to be very difficult uh, to move forward, and, and it's going to be very difficult to get out of the current economic position that we find ourselves in. Thank you, Chair. Okay. Uh, I, I could comment that a temporary solution isn't meant to be a long-term solution, and in that sense, that temporary is meant to be temporary until you find 
a permanent solution, but I, I take the, the other points that you made after that. I'm going to, to move on. Um, Doug Beatty is up next. Um, if we could bring Doug up into the spotlight. Um, I, I know that Martina said that she had to go at four and it's 10 to four, but I think she's falling off. Do you want to let Martina in first and she's got to go? I, I think she has gone, actually. just I'm looking down my list just to make sure, but I think she is actually... She had just gone. She was there a second ago. So we'll, we'll pass over to yourself then, Doug. All, all right, Chair. Thank you. And um, uh, welcome again, as always. And Gary, good to, good to see you here uh, as ever. Uh, very clear, very concise um, answers um, so far. Can I just ask uh, and, and maybe just get your thoughts on this? Um, at this moment in time, about 15% uh, of the point of entry certificates through the whole of the EU goes between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, yet we account for less than 1% uh, of the trade. Uh, is there an issue that the EU is applying, and this was the month of January, is there an issue that the EU is applying their rules and regulations stricter uh, on on that route between GB and Northern Ireland than they are in the rest of the United Kingdom, uh, I- including into Dublin? Well, uh, uh, Chair, I maybe come in on that first, and, and thanks, Doug, for your very kind remarks. Uh, what I would say in terms of uh, your position in regards to the um, the, the checks and the, the, the health entry documents, it does seem uh, quite a ridiculous position uh, from the EU in terms of their approach, but it's also highlighted the fact that uh, it's a ridiculous, ridiculous position that the EU are actually demanding checks and declarations on EU goods produced uh, in the EU, but distributed from GB, you know, which is which is a, a very very strange position, uh, but also in the fact that, and you've said in terms of the, the size of Northern Ireland, yet you know we're dealing with sixteen percent of uh, all health entry documents in comparison with the whole of the European Union. Um, and it has to be noted as well, which I find quite interesting in terms of the other statistics we have seen: the number of pests, contaminants, or diseases discovered by SPS checks at Northern Ireland ports is zero. Uh, and I think that we need to get to the position where uh, we, we do be, you know, when we talk about flexibility and we talk about, you know, making um, ma- ma- making Northern Ireland work, making um, the, the agreements work, then we need to be reasonable. And what we can't have is a situation where the, the internal market of the United Kingdom is disrupted so much uh, to the point where it's effectively uh, crippling our businesses, but creating a very detrimental situation, even when you compare compare that to other uh, entry points right across the, the, the European Union. Declan, did you want to, did you want to have anything? Yes, I'll just I'll just add a comment to uh, to that, Doug. Uh, good to see you again. Um, uh, first of all, I I, I don't have uh, that statistic that you referenced. To hand, um, I, I mean, I personally, uh, anecdotally or otherwise, don't don't pick up uh, any feedback to suggest that there's a disproportionate or an adverse or a punitive approach being taken by the European Commission in relation to uh, the, uh, the the operation of those controls. Um, I I think that uh, we, in terms of SPS. Um, we will hear the European Commission say that SPS issues on on our side can be avoided 
if the British government was in turn then properly respecting or observing uh, European Union SPS rules. And I think this really brings us back to the nub of the, the smooth operation of the protocol. We're approximately or approaching eight weeks in. Uh, there have been some difficulties with it thus far, some of which, and I indicated this at the last meeting, and, and I'm, I'm pleased to see that the trajectory seems to be positive uh, still towards finding uh, resolutions to some issues, other issues which uh, appear to have a partial resolution, and then some other issues, Doug, which have not been properly bottomed out. And it requires both the British government and the European Commission to be properly engaged within the framework of the protocol to ensure that, in fact, it does operate smoothly, that it's operating in a proportionate way, where there is a, a frictionless approach or as frictionless a pos as, as frictionless as possible an approach towards trade east to west, west to east, uh, on an all-island basis, and both between uh, Dublin and, uh, and, and southern ports with uh, ports, their counterparts, uh, in, in Britain itself. Now, that needs to be our focus as an executive, and I think as, uh, as, as a chamber, working unanimously to ensure that that happens. But the truth of it is that we, we now have, as a result of the protocol, new trading realities, and that's an inescapable consequence of, of, of Brexit. Our function and purpose has to be to mitigate, to minimise those to the greatest extent possible, to ensure our businesses are not badly affected, but importantly, our customers and our consumers don't end up uh, bearing a greater load of cost. Uh, but there is a curtain of bureaucracy which now exists as a direct consequence between how we trade east-west, between uh, Britain and here, between the north and moving into to Britain. But there is also a huge curtain of bureaucracy now which exists between uh, Britain and the European mainland also. Uh, so these are reflective of the new trading realities brought about as a result of Brexit. The, the job of work I think we have is with uh, steady heads and a calm approach uh, to ensure that we navigate those curtains of bureaucracy in a way, as I said earlier, that we do not see any disadvantage to either our businesses or to our consumers. Thanks for that, um, Gary Dingham. Just, just one, if I, if I can, please. Um, and that's very clear. And, and you're right because I would be supportive in, a, in some form of an SPS um, treaty with the, with the EU that would, would help us an, an awful lot. Um, so I would be supportive of that. And I hope the government are listening, uh, the UK government are listening in regards to that. But can I just ask, how are we capturing the small business and the issues that the small business are facing? And some of these are very bespoke and very unique. So let me give you an example of this. So I was speaking to a car dealership down in Castle Derg, who does 60% uh, of his trade across into the Irish Republic. But now, if he sells a car into the Irish Republic, the, the Irish Republic are putting 21% VAT onto the car. And that's not an EU issue. That's a trade border issue between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. The very thing that the protocol was supposed to stop. 
Um, you know, I mean, how do we capture that information? How do we deal with that? Apart from people like me sending that to, to, to various different people say, have a look at this. But this person in Castle Durg in the border areas, and he won't be alone, uh, is facing a trade, a trade border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. Yeah, it's really important that we do try and capture that, but in a systematic way. That, that's a, an instance there outside your constituency that's been brought to your attention. There have been other instances uh, which have arisen within my own constituency, Doug, and the intervention is then made by myself as a, as a constituency MLA uh, and also as a minister, making you know, the appropriate use of the access that I have to ensure that uh, those business people who I'm talking about uh, small mechanical engineers and so on, uh, that, that they, in fact, uh, have a way through the difficulty, the blip that they are they're currently uh, encountering. That particular point, the low-level stuff to which you refer, I think needs to be addressed in a systematic way by our officials. Uh, we need to ensure that uh, we're, we're gathering up all of that information so that it informs the kind of engagements which are taking place between our officials and those in Whitehall, but also our officials and uh, their counterparts within Irish revenue. So that where we're in a position to find uh, solutions to those difficulties uh, or indeed mitigations, because you're quite right, there are things happening at the moment that were not uh, provided for. They're not consequences of the protocol. I can think of one instance myself, uh, just in relation to uh, a steel tariff issue. Um, where someone's become a casualty of uh, what appears to be uh, the, the incorrect application of the, the rules. So we need to scale up the understanding among uh, our businesses, but we also need to ensure that there's a net created by our officials that the, the, the small traders, the small business people in particular, like the person you've referred to, uh, doesn't actively fall between the cracks. So we're, we've, we've a big, big piece of work to do, I think, on an ongoing basis to ensure that uh, th these new trading realities, these new business realities on an all-island basis also are, uh, are addressed in the appropriate way. Thanks. Sorry. Yeah, just, just to add to that, I, I think that Doug actually makes a very key point in terms of that engagement piece because... We know, and I know certainly from this last four weeks in, in this role, I've seen the extensive engagement in terms of feeding in both the UK government and the UK government into the EU and vice versa. The difficulty being that whenever we hear of issues, and I, I take your point in terms of they can either whether they be north, south, east, west, the fact is that there are certain groups out there and businesses who are very well connected. And, and you know, they, they do well for that in terms of they, they, they speak up for themselves in a sense that they're, they're connected to particular large uh, organizations and representative uh, groups. And there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. You know, that is a, a place. But some of the smaller uh, businesses, independent businesses, people who are just going about their day to day uh, daily lives and then they're hitting issues. It's, it's reaching those people. I suppose that was one of the concerns uh, Doug, that we had raised in terms of the meeting with uh, Sefcovich uh, and the Secretary of State with businesses and representatives in Northern Ireland, we felt that it was important that we, you know you get beyond sometimes those who we, we always hear from, and it's important we continue to hear from them. But here's some of the other issues maybe that's been faced at a more localised level. I, I, I do think that that could be improved. We need to look at how we do that. I think in fairness to 
uh, the officials, what I have found in terms of our briefing papers that we get, they are usually f very extensive and we would raise the issues uh, on their, on, obviously the people's behalf. But I think what we need to do uh, in ensuring, especially the issues around the protocol, we need to be getting down to the nitty gritty, if you like, and those very niche issues and, and bringing those forward so that they can be addressed and that those people can be heard as well. So I, I take your point, and certainly we will take that away, Doug, and hopefully um, look at that again in terms of maybe those issues, how we bring them forward. Um, Declan, Gary, th thank you very much. I, I did have another one, which was about exporting of bull semen, um, but I, I think I'll leave that for another day. Chair, thank you. Yes, it's particularly close to dinner time, so I think we'll, we'll move on quickly, please, if we could, and maybe ask Trevor Lund to come up into the spotlight, if that's possible and we'll get your question please thank you okay thank you uh hello gary hello Declan, and congratulations gary um i'm interested in the point that doug raised there because surely i don't think the guy that he's speaking about is insinuating that there's double vat being charged here the, the vat would have to be charged either in the republic or else the north and i mean there's always been a significant cross-border trade, particularly in new cars, depending on the exchange rate. So I'll, I'll be interested to see how that one pans out. What I'm, what I'm really looking at here is the uh, Manufacturing NI survey, and forgive me, I had to step out there for a few minutes, so I hope I don't repeat anything. The Manufacturing NI survey of, of business attitudes as of the end of January um, is actually quite, quite positive. Businesses seem to be they're doing what business does does well. They're adapting, and they're finding ways to work the system, and they're probably getting more familiar with the new forms and all the certificates and all the rest of it. And uh, really, I'll be very interested to see what the end of February survey says, because we're going to do one of these every month. Now, at, at the moment, you'd have to say it. Look at the overall results of that survey. That over half or at least reasonably satisfied with the way things have panned out. And some of them are making good progress. And they they are somewhere still saying they're currently struggling significantly with new process, but it's likely to ease. That's one of the answers. That's 20, 28%. So would you agree with me? I mean, I know there's a big political discussion going on here. And, uh, you know, that's, that's politics is what politics is. But business appears to be finding a way me is that for a comment good to see you trevor yes i think it is uh business people are uh problem solvers yes uh, they're solution focused and uh the the survey returns that you reference uh are in the public domain what i have picked up myself uh again anecdotally and through a number of my own discussions uh, is that uh, the customs situation, the customs difficulties are improving, um, that uh, many companies, as you said, are adapting. And th that extends even into the agri-food sphere, uh, where there are, there are significant enough uh, requirements which need to be met. So I do think that uh, our, our business sector uh, typically is adapting to the new circumstances and finding ways through. Our job, I think, is to ensure that uh, their efforts are given greater resilience from within the institution of government and that we are constantly bending our efforts to ensure that uh, they are assisted. 
in how that's done. And uh, I think that there is much more that can be achieved as a result of the direct engagement between the European Commission and the British government on that two-way street basis that I mentioned in response to Colin's initial question. Uh, if uh, the, the British government is fulfilling all of its requirements under the protocol, uh, then that clearly gives you leverage in relation to uh, seeking additional assistance from the European Commission, additional, if necessary, uh, flexibilities to ensure that uh, life is made easier for business, for trade, for commerce. Because ultimately, and I think many businesses do see it in these terms, uh, we have dual market access for, for all of the, the cant and the, the negativity around the protocol itself. It, it, it has found a way through that curtain of bureaucracy that has now been thrown up as a result of the decision to Brexit, to leave the European Union. Uh, it has created a, a landing zone for many businesses who put their minds to work, come up with solutions. They want to find a way through in order to uh, not only maintain markets, but find new markets. There's a perfect opportunity now to, uh, to, to have, a, if you will, a, an each-way bet an each-way bet for businesses in relation to uh, exploiting the benefits of the internal market with uh, the British state, but by the same token, having full access to the, the 450 million consumers who constitute the European uh, Union single, single market. Trevor, just to, thanks, Chair, just to come in on that as well. Uh, I haven't the figures, and I, I did read the survey, and I think that those surveys are very much useful. What I would say is that um, in, in terms of going forward, uh, I, I note Declan's point in terms of the, the dual access point. The difficulty being with that is that access from GB to Northern Ireland is not unfettered, okay? Despite commitments that have been given, Effectively, GB, well, GB is a third world country to Northern Ireland. That's effectively what the protocol has done. Uh, and that should never have been because what, what should have been is, is the UK as a whole uh, should have been on the same terms and left on the same terms. So effectively, it's created a situation where Northern Ireland's largest market, MGB, is, is detrimented by, by by the current situation. So, so I, I take your point in terms of businesses, but which, uh, you know, and some of those businesses who were surveyed. But to look wider than that, the implication goes beyond. Uh, and, and if you look at individual lives in terms of the impact that it's had uh, on uh, products coming in, whether that be through uh, parcels, and again, there's going to be concerns in terms of the grace periods there. And I know that there, there have been concerns that many businesses and GB have decided. Um, just not to bother, not to even, not to even invest in this because they're saying, look, it's, it's, not, it's not worth their while. But the other issue in terms of the stuff coming from GB is the cost impact on consumers here, but also the time, which is affecting businesses. So when, when we say we have dual access, we have to stipulate that with the fact that, well, we, we, we may have access out the ways, but that's not much use if... All of the, you know, we rely so heavily on uh, goods coming from GB or, and, and um, products coming from GB to uh, ensure we can manufacture our goods and, and export them. You know, so in order to get dual, um, in order to get dual access, in order for that to be successful, then we need to be having unfettered access 
with our main market in GB. Mm-hmm. That's the point I think that we need to make whenever we're talking about the best of both worlds, which obviously we don't have. Yeah, well, thanks for that, Gary. You and I would be on slightly different sides of the discussion in terms of the political aspect of it all. Uh, unfettered was always going to be imp- impossible to achieve at both fronts, either north, south, and east, west. But I mean, the, the point I'm making really is that if you looked at the situation just at the beginning of January, and it was it was just when business was gearing up to a new regime, it was pretty horrific. I would agree with you. Look at look at the situation now, and look at that survey, and that's done almost a month ago. Another one to come now in a few days' time, and let's just just see where we are. So when I, when I hear arguments about sausages and Christmas presents or birthday presents, I just I do wonder. I mean, have we, have we not got sausage producers in Northern Ireland? Because all for every complaint I hear about business difficulties here, I hear about somebody else who will find a business opportunity. And that's really what it's all about. We, we can trade both directions. But I'm not, I'm not trying to get political here. I'll we'll, we'll be interested to see what the next survey says. No question. Okay, thank you, Trevor. And wouldn't be like us to get political on this committee now for sure, but uh, thank you for not doing that. Um, can I apologize? I actually meant to bring Emma Sheeran in next because I know she's having difficulty using the raise hand function from the platform she's on. So if we could bring Emma Sheeran up into the spotlight, please, next for her question. And there we go. Emma, my apologies to you for that. Chair, not at all. You're 100%. Thank you very much. And and thanks to the, the two ministers. And I want to reiterate uh, congratulations and, and welcome. Or maybe it's commiserations I should be offering to Gary. I'm sure your your workload has increased. Um, just my, my question is, I suppose, a bit of a deviation from what you have been discussing thus far. Um, and there's all sorts of things that have been um, discussed it, it, since since we were since we actually left the, the EU and problems that have arisen and different solutions. And I think people have touched upon the fact that our business people in the north and our, our producers are problem solvers. And in a way, I've, I've, I've been contacted by constituents with all sorts of uh, different situations, and, and that is what's what's coming across. And perhaps um, a need for greater transparency or help from some local departments in terms of uh, paperwork. but. The thing I wanted to ask about was in relation to the rights of European citizens in the North and people who are Irish people living in the North who value their European citizenship and value the, the rights that, that they were able to attain in the past by virtue of our EU membership and want to see continuing on um, with, their, with their new arrangement. And I wondered, in light of that, how important it was that the, that the North maintains sort of a... a, a a bureau or an office in the EU and and how important that would be for ensuring that these rights are delivered and on holding the different stakeholders, whether that be the Irish government or the EU or the British government, to account in terms of things like the EHIC and um, the Erasmus programme and different things that we have become accustomed to living in the North as, EU, uh, as an EU member state. So. Thank you. I'm wondering if you can expand on that. Okay. Yeah, I'm happy to go first uh, on that particular question, Emma. The the points that you raise in relation to, to rights are provided for under Article 2. 
So, I mean, the protocol, uh, in my opinion, indemnifies it and trenches uh, the rights which citizens here enjoy uh, under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement. And of course, the European Union is a stakeholder in our peace settlement and made a very significant contribution in terms of uh, templates to uh, the, the authorship and the creation of the Good Friday Agreement itself. So I think that we have to take it as a given that the rights of citizens here uh, in the North will continue to be respected from whatever section of the community they come, uh, whether they are newcomers uh, who have made this place their home, uh, whether uh, they are of, a, of, of an Irish identity, a British identity, uh, I think all of those rights need to be uh, underlined and entrenched, and the provisions are there for that. Therefore, in terms of proper implementation of the protocol, then uh, the uh, the guarantee of that rests with both the British government and the European Com uh, Commission in, in respect of the uh, the specific change that we now have on under the terms of the protocol. And the protocol was introduced as, as, as a protective mitigation measure as opposed to something that was designed to in any way infringe or reduce or detract from citizens' rights. But with respect to the, the, the question you raise about the, the permanency of our European Bureau, the, the, in terms of our international footprint as a region, as a regional government, the, the three locations where we have um, Bureau uh, are in uh, the European Union, in the United States slash North America, and also China. It's interesting that the uh, bureau with the largest number of personnel uh, located within it is in fact our, our, our Brussels office. And I think that's reflective of the, the, the very close relationship that we have had uh, within the European Union to date. And therefore, I, I just think that it would be counterintuitive not to think that we would continue to maintain a permanent presence within the, uh, the European Union, with full access to the European Council, to the European Commission, uh, to the European Parliament, to the, to the full bureaucracy and uh, institution of the European Union. I, I, I could not imagine that we would not want to do that on an ongoing basis, particularly in light of the fact that we now have the protocol uh, this part of Ireland has been taken out of the European Union under the terms of the withdrawal agreement. Uh, there's there's an interesting thought to conjure with, and, and that is that, in fact, under the terms of the protocol, uh, the North now is, uh, has, a, has, a, has, a, has a foot in both camps. Uh, we are like a, a half-sized state remaining within the European Union, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, I think it's recognition of our special and different circumstances. It confers upon us a special status, and I think an important platform for that special status uh, conferred upon us by the European Union is found in the uh, continued existence of the, uh, the Brussels office in our European Bureau. So I do think it's very important that that continues in order to maintain a very high level of connection and interaction between our power sharing government, our assembly, with the structures of the European Union. That's how we'll ensure that, in fact, we optimise the, the reality of dual access to both the single European market and also then ensuring that we get best benefit from our continued access to the 
British internal market? Obviously, uh, Chair, I would take a, a very different view to that, but I, but I do thank Emma first of all for her uh, kind words of welcome. Uh, in terms of in terms of uh, the, the EU office and in terms of the position, obviously we, we've we've left the EU. I think that there will always be a place for engagement, and we need to encourage uh, that engagement. The difficulty being that what we've seen over the past uh, four years is a situation where uh, the European Union have effectively. Uh, demanded, you know, full respect uh, for its uh, workings, for its uh, custom union, customs union, for its single market, and of course for the laws uh, that they have. The difference being that they haven't shown the same respect in terms of the regard for uh, the UK's laws, and of course in terms of you know we talk about the Belfast Agreement and we talk about uh, the practical realities of Northern Ireland and how it works, and, and there hasn't been the same uh, respect shown. Uh, in, in that regard. So, so what we need to do is we need to work through the immediate challenges. Unfortunately, at this moment in time, what we've seen is a very much a tone-deaf approach to uh, the rights of uh, unionists, particularly within uh, Northern Ireland in the, in the disregard for uh, the agreements that are currently in place. But, but there's always room for uh, discussion and engagement. And, and of course, and Emma, you mentioned around you know, the likes of the Erasmus uh, program and you know, you know those programs are important. But of course, the UK has uh, announced the Turing program, which will be a worldwide uh, program, which will benefit uh, our, our citizens immensely. So what we need to do is ensure that we can get the best deal for our citizens here uh, and respect, of course, all views. But unfortunately, that hasn't been the situation to date. I think it's. I, I think. We need to avoid a situation where we end up conflating uh, how we manage new economic and trading realities given rise to by Brexit with identity identity issues and identity politics. Uh, so the issue of having a permanent office in Europe, in my view, it makes economic and political sense. We, we can sort out uh, the political differences that continue to beset our society, the communal division within our society under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement. I, I think it's a mistake to uh, bring those issues into the discussion around uh, how we continue to interact with the, the European Union and the European Commission. And I do think that the Commission office that we have gives us a beachhead for ensuring that we stay properly focused in a pragmatic and a practical way on the, the, the real life, the real world economic and, and political issues that we need to deal with. And we'll, we'll deal with our political difficulties here at home. Okay, Emma, are you happy enough there? Or have you a follow-up question? No, I thank the ministers uh, for their answer. I think that, I mean, it'll not come as any surprise that I would sort of agree with Minister Kearney's um, re reflection and, and assessment of things. And I do feel like there's, you know, there has to be a responsibility on all of us not to, to hype things up and not to conflate the issues that we're seeing at the minute because, you know, the... The Irish Sea border has always been there and it hasn't affected British people living in the north from, you know, it hasn't stopped them being British. And, you know, unionists, I think, need to realise and acknowledge that they're still unionists, they're still British and, and, and our new arrangement doesn't affect that. So um, I, I just feel like that that's an important thing for us to, to take cognizance of. But thank you. OK, thank you. Um, members, we have three more 
uh, members that need to come in and ask questions. So if I could do two things, please. Um, if I could ask members to try and get as much of their questioning into one question or one statement with one or two questions, but get it into one input if we could. Uh, and then maybe if I could urge the, the ministers to to rattle through their responses as quick as we can as well and keep them uh, succinct and then we'll hopefully get through everybody's questions okay. If I could ask for Trevor Clark to be brought up into the uh, spotlight please for his question and I'll pass over to yourself Trevor. Can I say just before I start Chairman, maybe in reflection maybe sometime you should take a wee bit of your own advice because it's 20 past four and some of us haven't even spoken this meeting today so Maybe, maybe if you took some of your own advice and didn't hug me in the start, maybe the rest of us had a bit more time. Can I, can I ask Minister Kearney, can I ask Minister Kearney in relation to the contribution yesterday, um, where his own member had talked about other opportunities, where it was pointed out to him the difficulties for trade coming from GB to Northern Ireland, where his uh, colleague referred to other opportunities, how would he describe that as unfettered access for Northern Ireland? I'm not privy to the particular comments that you're you're citing, uh, Trevor. So I'll I'll, I'll I'll take your point in the context of unfettered access and uh, the point that I made around uh, our ability to uh, to to have dual market access uh, to both the internal uh, British internal market and the single European market. And, and and I think I've set my position out on that pretty quickly. Um, I mean, I think that uh, while most businesses operating in the north who would source goods in Britain uh, have experienced some difficulties, they're going to be overcome. Um, I mean, if you've got a manufacturer who's importing chemicals from Britain, once they uh, crack the particular bureaucracy, that curtain of bureaucracy, the paperwork that applies, uh, then... Uh, the, the further compliance issues will be all the cheaper. I actually think that there are opportunities here where the uh, advisors, and I referred to this, and I think it was in a question that you put in the last meeting or a comment that you made at the last meeting, um, where uh, British trade advisors were actually uh, counselling British-based businesses in order to minimise expense and cost and bureaucracy that they were incurring by maintaining their economic relationship with the European Union to actually then set up subsidiary companies on the European mainland to in order in order to be able to continue to trade effectively, but without the costs that they were going to incur uh, on the basis of uh, managing the new realities. It seems to me that uh, to, 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 to put this into some practical context, rather than British-based companies, looking at setting up uh, subsidiary companies in the European mainland with all of the costs, the setup costs that that would incur, why not set up the, uh, the, the additional structure uh, here in the north and then create uh, a jump-off point directly into the 26 counties and from here with the access that we have into the European, uh, into the European market? And in fact, uh, ensure that British-based companies enjoy the same access that companies based here in the north would enjoy. Instead of having the cost of relocating to the European mainland, relocate subsidiaries here into the north and actually find a gateway opening up to them. 
Again, uh, I'm to the point about practical solutions being mm. found to uh, to some real world difficulties arising from the new economic and trading realities imposed by Brexit. Uh, and I suppose yeah. you, could say, you could say in relation to that, Declan, that that sounds like a reasonable thing for businesses to do. But where businesses already have established themselves here, and indeed businesses in GB, and there has been a good trading relationship between both, where, and I mean, I don't put an awful lot of weight on what a particular radio show uh, at 9 o'clock in the morning and BBC Review Ulster says, but this morning they referred to 80% of businesses who did do business with Northern Ireland said they were going to discontinue that business from the 1st of April because of the difficulties of this fettered access as opposed to unfettered access. I mean, I think you and I will agree with one thing about traders in Northern Ireland. They will be imaginative and they will try different things. But you can't try that from a, a very small base overnight to retain employment and jobs for those people in those different different locations. And indeed, they'll do it for economic reasons. They'll not do it because they're forced to do it. And that's what worries me, where businesses can't trade the way they've done. I mean, there was there was conversation, and I declare none has been involved in the motor trade for many years, but, but there's, a, there's a simple one. Our lorries are going out on a weekly basis, this time last year, with loads of cars. And they're coming back with loads of cars. Now they can't do that. So their hauliers are being hit because of this. Now there is no option for those people with transporters taking cars out and cars in because of the difficulties with, with this protocol. So there's one person who can't trade because actually has already been referenced by Doug Beatty. There's the trading problem between us and the Republic of Ireland with car trade. So we're hit both ways with people who are involved in the motor trade and the hauliers who are actually moving those cars. And, and, and just in conclusion, to let, to let Gary come in, Colin, not to, to, to hog this, I mean, those are practical, immediate problems. I don't think that they are systemic consequences of the, the, the protocol. Those are the kind of issues that need to be identified. They need to be isolated. And then we need to use the kind of engagement that we would have going forward through the joint consultative uh, working group that has been inaugurated uh, in order to actually find the, the practical solutions to those kind of unintended consequences uh, that would arise. And I absolutely agree with you. Our businesses are very innovative, they're solution focused, but they also deserve help and support and assistance from us in relation to how they can optimize the opportunities that I think can exist for both continuing uh, productive and profitable relations with the internal market, but also seeking out opportunities with the single European market as well. Gary, do thanks, Chair. I, I will come in briefly, just in terms of uh, Trevor's point, uh, well made around um, some of the figures of businesses, you know, not willing to uh, trade with here, given the, the position they've been put in through the, the protocol. The difficulty being that others who have decided to, whether it be you know, uh, crack the paperwork, as has been mentioned in terms of the freeze. The difficulty with that is that that adds uh, two things: it adds time uh, to the process, but it also adds cost and where does that cost be born and that's that that therein lies the difficulty for us and no matter uh, what guidance you provide it won't solve that problem no matter what uh, preparedness itself will not solve that problem uh, what we need is a situation where we deal with the, um, the, 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 the challenges and the difficulties that have been placed between uh, GB and Northern Ireland. And until we, we deal with those and recognise that those are real issues that are not going to be uh, dealt with 
in terms of uh, through paperwork. We need to recognise the fact that the GB market is our largest market, and until we do so and recognise that in equal uh, comparison with how we trade with other um, jurisdictions as well, then it's, it's going to remain a significant problem. Uh, and uh, you know, it's not realistic to suggest that you know look, everybody just move here. We know that there's business challenges even given the current pandemic. It's not realistic to just suggest that everybody move here and we can have dual access because, again, the difficulties arise whenever we're relying on uh, GP, GB uh, goods being imported here, uh, parts for products being imported here, and it can't be done. Therein lies the difficulty. Okay, thank you, uh, Gary, for that. So next up, we have Pat Sheehan. If we could bring Pat up into the spotlight, please. Okay, Pat, over to yourself. Thanks, Chair. I, I just want to uh, read out part of an email I got there within the past hour, and it relates to our previous presentation from officials uh, regarding the uh, Shared Future funding. Uh, and this young lad called Aaron Hughes says, I am a T-Buck Young Ambassador with the Department for Communities. And having heard this news this afternoon, it has made me deeply concerned. And that's the fact that the shared funding, uh, uh, shared future funding is being stopped. This program has changed my life from development of my confidence to gaining essential qualification to get me where I am today. The life-changing opportunities such as traveling to Rwanda last August. I'm wondering would the would the two ministers like to comment on that? Thank you. Okay, um, I pass over. I appreciate that we we're in a Brexit oral briefing, but I do think the point that's been made is one relevant. Uh, we've we've all received that email this afternoon during the meeting, but also because you didn't provide us with uh, an appropriate paper before the meeting, we weren't able to prepare uh, and ask the questions. So. Um, I think that's why the ministers are paid the big bucks, is that they have to occasionally be put on the line and asked a question. So um, if you were able to give us an update on that, it would be really appreciated because people are concerned out there. Gary, you want well, to...? Yeah, I can. I, I don't have a, a precise update. It's the first time I've seen the email, so I certainly am happy to come back with more detail on that. I, I do know that in terms of the executive position itself you know the full replacement of the spending power previously derived from eu sources uh, is very much uh, something that uh, will be taken forward now i take your point around tbuck and around the, the uh, i know this was confused in terms of the last uh, contributions as well when, when the, the, um, the the officials were in front of you but i take your point around tbuck and around the challenges uh, that that has placed, and I know that myself and Junior Minister Kearney have been involved in discussions in terms of trying to ensure uh, that that funding is uh, sustained going forward. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have any more detail at this stage. As I say, I, I haven't seen the email, but I am happy to come back to you uh, in the very near future. And, and again, apologies in terms of your briefing note and, and the, the briefing pack that you did not receive. Uh, but as you will appreciate, a lot of these issues uh, change not only on a daily basis but on an hour by hour basis. So I think that it is important we get papers to you that it's up to date and as relevant as possible. Daglan, is there anything you want to add to that? I haven't seen the email, Colin, but I'm very familiar with the, the programme. I may even have met that young guy. 
uh, it does amazing work on the ground. It's transformational. And I just think that we are uh, in, in civic community and political terms, selling young people like that short by a mile uh, when we can't actually guarantee the resource that would allow for that kind of uh, funding, that kind of program uh, to continue. Um, we, we, we're, we're, we're in a very, very challenging period now with uh, a flat budget available from uh, this particular British government. I, I think that we face the prospect of a new era of austerity uh, when we get to the other side, potentially, of COVID, when the full scale of an economic emergency will probably manifest itself. The, uh, the lack of certainty in relation to our being able to rely upon continued access to uh, European funds is, is frightening. Uh, it's good that our young people may have some degree of continued access to programs like, for example, and I, and I know I'm raising a separate issue here, but I think it's all linked, such as Erasmus. But uh, there, there are no guarantees attaching to any of that. So I think that in, in terms of both the uh, funding resource that we can expect from the British Exchequer uh, in the coming period, which is flat and in net terms, a reduction, and then with the uh, the imponderables that are thrown up in respect of uh, the loss of European funding, that uh, that that personal story that Pat has outlined is going to be magnified across the board among many young people that we know within our communities whom we represent and further afield. Just to add, Chair, just very briefly, it is my understanding that we do have an engagement uh, in March time uh, with some young people or certainly representatives in and around the Shared Future Fund. I'd be very happy to meet uh, whoever uh, the, the gentleman, the young person was in that email. I'm sure Junior Minister Kearney, without putting them on the spot, would be happy to have any discussions in terms of uh, supporting our young people um, going forward. But thanks for raising that, but I will take the detail and come back to you on that. Thanks for that. And just briefly, uh, I, I wasn't trying to throw a curveball in, Chair. It's just I thought that, uh, you know, we know the budget is going to be very challenging. Uh, we know the British government are bringing us into another period of austerity. And sometimes the personal stories, you know, here's a young man who has been given a great opportunity as a result of funding the executive office to be able to provide and a program that the executive office was able to set up. And now the carpet is just being pulled out from under him. Uh, and I mean, uh, Declan mentioned the Erasmus project, which I was going to come on to as well. A similar situation there. I mean, great opportunities for young people to go away and study in other European countries uh, to sample the life there, the culture, the language, you know, and all the opportunities that go along with that. And now that is being taken away as well. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's disappointing uh, in both these sort of programs that it's young people who are going to suffer as a result of Brexit on the one hand and the British government for a authority on, on the other. Not really a question there, but thank you. Anyway, thank you. 
Chair, just want to add, just in terms of the Erasmus scheme, I did mention just in the previous answer that obviously that's been replaced with the Turin scheme, which is going to be a worldwide scheme. Hopefully, uh, you know, young people will be able to benefit from that. Uh, it's just worth saying that, as I say, that has been replaced by uh, the Turin scheme. I think it is important that as an executive in all of these issues that you know we prioritise, and of course the Finance Minister, no doubt, uh, will want to be prioritised in terms of how he um, puts his own... Uh, vision forward as well, but as I say, thanks to Pat for that. Okay, uh, then finally, if I ask Christopher Stalford to be brought into the spotlight, please, for his questions. Um, Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Chairman, the practical outworkings of the protocol only sort of 60 or 70 days in um, have demonstrated that it creates barriers to trade, but I want to raise an issue which I think is actually just an example of cruelty. As a consequence of the protocol, it is difficult for people who are blind or visually impaired to travel with um, their dogs. This is because guide dogs traveling from Great Britain to Northern Ireland are being classed as pets. This, I think, is an example of where the inflexibility that was talked about needs to be addressed. In the last 10 years, 250 puppies have been trained to become assistance dogs in Northern Ireland through the, the breeding centre in England. And as a result of the arrangements that are in place, uh, the supply of pups being taught has been suspended. Um, uh, you, you have to wait until they're around 15 weeks old, which is well past the point for their development. Now, I think that those, that is an example of just how the inflexibility uh, is not only having a negative impact in terms of the economy, but on humans, on human beings and their, their, their everyday lives. And I think it's important that these issues are highlighted because uh, economic arguments can sometimes be very abstract. I think. An example like this, and also the uh, invocation of Article 16 by the European side to attempt to restrict the vaccine supply coming to the United Kingdom was another example of how these arrangements put in place represent a sort of Damocles hanging over our head that can be used against us to hurt people in a very practical sense. I know that um, Declan will disagree with me fundamentally on that, but I think those who argued for rigorous implementation of this should have been very, very careful about what they wished for. There's no question there, but if someone wants to speak to it, they're welcome to. Okay, uh, over to yourselves, Declan. I'm happy to come in and, 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 and respond, and I appreciate it's more a statement than a, a question, Christopher. Uh, and uh, I, I couldn't agree more with you about the, the, the difficulty that uh, that particular instance that you've cited throws up. I mean, it, it, is, it is wrong. It's very, very challenging. It's a very, very difficult situation for uh, someone with, mental, uh, with visual impairments who, who's uh, a disabled member of our society is then disadvantaged in that way. And that needs to be resolved and fixed. So I do know that uh, the issue of pets and that would extend to uh, uh, 
pets who are uh, who are uh, assistants for people with uh, visual impairments and uh, was in fact discussed along with uh, the issue of uh, the chilled meats issue, medicines, parcels at the, that specialised committee meeting that took place yesterday. We have, through the uh, the XO meetings, uh, since the beginning of the year, raised all of those issues, Christopher, repeatedly, including the issue of uh, guide dogs and pets. Uh, we've argued, actually, that uh, what's required is a passport uh, for for pets of all description to uh, to be able to move back and forward without any impediment in order then to ensure that citizens like you've described are not in any way uh, disadvantaged or, or having their rights disproportionately uh, infringed upon. So they need to be fixed and they need to be resolved. And it is a cruelty that someone has to live with that kind of difficulty on top of a, an existing disability. But set into the broader context, uh, the, the fact is that uh, the British government have been involved in these negotiations now for, for years. We, we had previously an agreement struck by Theresa May. There was a backstop agreement that arguably would have provided greater levels of flexibility and a much better landing zone for so many of these issues than has been created as a result of the hard Brexit that was finally fought for and secured. And then as a consequence of that, the protocol has emerged. But regardless of our, of our different political points of view on, on these uh, these points, Christopher. Boris Johnson had the shape of this in 2019. He knew what was coming down the track. They, there, 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 there were no surprises in relation to the, the kind of issues that were going to have to be addressed arising from the, um, the, the protocol itself. And if I can just make one final point in the broader economic sense of, of, of all of this, uh, Colin, because rightly so, these have been issues that have been raised during the course of today's meeting, SPS, checks, uh, and so on and so forth. Bearing in mind this, in the course of the negotiations, this particular British uh, government negotiation team could in fact have gone for something different. Uh, they, could have, they could have chosen to go for a greater alignment with the EU's food safety rules much along the uh, the lines of what Norway and Switzerland have secured with the EU. And that would have actually ensured that there would have been much less friction. It would have created a different pathway on some of these particular issues that I listed in relation to uh, discussion at the specialised committee yesterday. Uh, we couldn't have avoided many of these difficulties if a much more enlightened strategic approach had been taken to the negotiation in the first place. But the truth of it is, uh, Boris Johnson and saw this coming. They negotiated it with their eyes wide open. The job now for people like ourselves, for Christopher, for myself, and yourself, Chair, is now to ensure that uh, we have a smooth operation of the protocol and that we're very pragmatic, pragmatic and that we're very solution-focused in relation to how we do that, because we share we share the representing and doing best by all of our citizens, and I know that's common ground that we have between us, and I think that has to always have primacy. 
Gary, do you want to come in there? Yeah, the Chair, just very briefly, and apologies, there's some sound difficulties there. Um, but what I would say is that what Christopher's highlighted just highlights, the, I suppose, the direct interference that's been had in our everyday lives. And, you know, that pet example is, is one case, which is a very sad case. But it, could go, it, it goes beyond that. It goes uh, in terms of whether it be in terms of medicines, uh, going to our NHS here in Northern Ireland, whether it be in terms of uh, seeds, soil, parcels, uh, second-hand cars, tractors. Th th these are all issues which effectively are a straitjacket in terms of uh, Northern Ireland, uh, and, and that, that's what's been placed on us. So until we uh, come to the realisation that these issues are beyond teething problems, uh, that they are serious issues in terms of the internal workings with the United Kingdom, then we're not going to be able to resolve that. Time and time again, when people talk about solutions, so solutions were put forward uh, to, 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 to these problems uh, initially. And, and you know, when, when the EUP were raising issues around uh, e-customs and online declarations, small business exemptions, trusted trader schemes, bilateral, bilateral agreements, all of these things were put forward and dismissed. Uh, we're now in a situation where uh, the joint committees having to, to come together again. And I do hope that they listen to the genuine concerns that are out there within our communities and uh, come to a resolution uh, so that we can move forward and that Northern Ireland can be prosperous uh, once again. Okay. Christopher, you happy enough there? Just one very brief point, Chair. I think the fact that the, the UK is, as at, the, at the present time, aligned with EU rules. We haven't had any uh, divergence thus far. These arrangements have only been in place for less than two months or for less than uh, 60 days. Uh, the fact that even with our existing alignment, these difficulties have been thrown up, I think demonstrates just how unworkable the situation is. Okay, thank, thank you for, for that, Christopher. I'm going to um, move on just to the final speaker now because um, Martina Anderson did have to go at four o'clock, but as we're still here, she's come back again. So, uh, Martina, we can bring you up into the spotlight and you can ask your questions. Uh, thank you very much. Some people might say I'm a glutton for punishment. Uh, I've been sitting swimming from, from nine o'clock this morning, different meetings. But can I first of all congratulate Gary um, as someone who comes from this constituency um, on, on the position he has? And can I also, with your indulgence, um, just acknowledge the role that the Executive Office today played in the signing of the heads of terms for the city deal, inclusive growth? Um, we had the Joint First Minister zooming in as well as the Finance Minister, and that was deeply appreciated because, Chair, you know, this financial package um, invested in Darien Straban is the biggest financial package ever. And this is in the middle of all of this pandemic where hope and reality comes together to shape people's futures. So, and it's not aspirational, it's real, and it's a great news day for Derry. So, just afford me the opportunity to say that. I want to say more of a comment, if you don't mind. There's probably too much I could say about uh, the whole Brexit journey and where we're at now. But during the time of the discussion about Brexit, the vote about Brexit and the transition, you know, I met with guide dog owners. I highlighted that this would be one of the issues of what's been dragged out of the EU for some of us, uh, and including the issue of funding. And, you know, we were accused, those of us that were identifying these problems that was going to happen, 
of project fear and of scaremongering. And unfortunately, it has become project fact. We have to work together. I am acutely aware of people's views about where all this has landed. There was going to be a harder border somewhere on the island of Ireland of being dragged out of the EU. So uh, I'm very mindful of the work. I was listening to the two ministers before I had to go off and have obviously been following. I'm mindful of the executive office, the efforts that they are making to see what kind of resolution can be found to some of these issues. And also uh, very mindful that we have a grace period that we can't waste. And I'm hoping that whatever kind of preparation that has to be done is being done so that the grace period as we move forward, if it's not extended, then we don't waste it. Chair, I suppose just right. to come in and, and, and thank uh, Martina for the kind words. Obviously, I, I share her uh, enthusiasm and support for uh, what was announced today in terms of the Heads of Terms Agreement. I think that that is a good news story. Uh, if only we had more of them, uh, I think that we would be in a much better place. We can look forward to that, I think, and uh, as been said, I think we need to congratulate all of those involved in, in that good news story. Uh, just back to the point in around the, the guide dogs and, and the pets issue, uh, it's an issue that, that, that's going to have to be uh, resolved. Um, we know, in, in terms of my information, Minister Putz um, he did have a meeting uh, at the tail end of January in terms of trying to uh, trying to get some clarity, but he did say that he would allow um, some additional time for uh, pet owners to become familiar with the new requirements, hence the reason that there would be no routine checks um, on or before the 1st of July 2021, although it was stipulated with the fact that they do reserve the right to undertake checks should there be suspicion of illegal activity or welfare concerns. Um, th th there's ongoing engagement with officials on, on this matter. Um, they're working with their counterparts. Uh, in GB and of course in, in ROI as well. So it's an issue that we're going to have to come back to. But again, there's going to have to be a, a workaround because it, it's, it's not practical and I think it's causing a lot of um, well offence to people uh, and it needs to be addressed. Declan, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, just a focal score. Uh, Colin, thanks. I think uh, I think that we, we, we're now in what you could describe as process land. The protocol is here, it's here to stay. Uh, that was most recently acknowledged by the uh, British Secretary of State earlier today, but it has been a, a public position articulated by Michael Gove and other senior uh, British government civil servants in the course of the last uh, few weeks, both at uh, hearings within the, uh, the House of Parliament and also the House of Lords. So it does not make any of us any less Republican or Unionist to accept the fact that it's here, that uh, we look to the bigger picture, we find the common ground that we can share to ensure that businesses continue to prosper, that our, cost, our, our consumers are not in any way disadvantaged, that uh, those who rely upon uh, guide dogs are in no way disadvantaged or have their rights any further infringed as disabled members of our society. That's the common ground that we have. And what we need to do is ensure that uh, the two-way street requirement, which is shared by the European Commission and the British government to, to meet their respective obligations, is carried out to the full. That, that we are guardians 
uh, of uh, all of our citizens' rights, that we have a weather eye to ensuring that this protocol works smoothly as, as a reality, whether we like it or not, it's here to stay and it's not going away. And we need to ensure that the provisions within the framework of the uh, protocol are properly implemented and where there is a need to actually find some flexibility or mitigation or easement, that those options are in fact properly investigated. If we can bring them into reality that we do so within the framework of the, the protocol, because that, that is our, that's the framework that guarantees us uh, crit critical uh, positions going forward. And on that basis, I believe that if we work together and we, uh, we have calm nerves with steady heads, uh, we're using the same kind of language, that we can have very significant leverage over uh, the responsibility of the British government to do what it has to do, but also importantly, as, as, as effectively a new half member of a state of the European Union, that we exert the necessary influence and pressure on the European Commission also to ensure that uh, it is meeting its obligations and that these difficulties that we're experiencing at the moment are short-lived and that we actually start to uh, change the landscape that we're currently operating in. And most important of all, that, that we take the acrimony and we take the negativity uh, and the hostility that has built up in the course of the last few weeks out of the debate around the protocol and out of the, the debate about how we ensure that these economic realities are properly managed by us all. I hope that's useful just as a, as a final comment. Okay, thank you very much. And thank you, Martina, for, for that question. Uh, can, can I thank uh, both uh, ministers for their attendance here this afternoon? Uh, I appreciate that the session has taken a little bit longer than was planned on the agenda. But given that there is so much, as the ministers mentioned, negativity and noise out in the com in community, I think it is so important that we take opportunities like this to lay out exactly what the views and what the perspectives are, and as well to acknowledge that they may be different views, but at least we all know uh, within the realm of a committee where everybody stands. So I appreciate both of you for your attendance here today. And one thing I was conscious that we have... Um, probably missed from last week and this week with the promotion uh, of uh, Minister Middleton also was the promotion of uh, uh, Minister Lands to the Minister of Agriculture and I suppose from this committee we should have wished him well uh, in his endeavours over there as well but to both of you today for your attendance thank you very much indeed and we wish you as well with your work. Thank you. Thank you Chair. Okay uh, members then we will move on then to item seven, which is the forward work program. Uh, it's on page 191 of the meeting pack. And uh, just to advise that the uh, junior ministers, actually I think it was meant to ask them or whenever they were in, that they're un unable to attend the committee on Thursday or Friday as proposed due to other commitments. So uh, at this stage, I think we're gonna have to propose that we don't do uh, that briefing in March, but we maybe will endeavour in the background to see if there's something else that can be arranged in the meantime. So uh, that's where we are on the forward work programme. The um, deputy uh, first and deputy first ministers are scheduled for the 14th of April. Um, maybe I could just ask if all members are on mute because there is feedback coming through there. If I say you deserve this man, he's the highest column. 
I think it's probably yourself, Christopher, if you were able just to pop on the mute there. Thank you. Um, so the first and deputy first ministers are scheduled to brief us on the 14th of April, which will enable us to get the update then. Uh, we will write to the uh, junior ministers and ask them that we maybe at least get a written uh, submission for that week at the end of March as well. Uh, on page 187 of the meeting pack is the information about the overview of questioning skills. Shall we schedule that for Wednesday the 5th of May? We can adjust that in the future. If needed, I'll take note dissent as consent there. Then we shall note the rest of the uh, work programme if members are happy enough. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, in terms of correspondence, the correspondence are on pages 202 to 300 of the meeting pack, and there's five in the tabled pack. Are members content to note that, or is there any issues that members wish to raise? Jerry, uh, there's one issue, if you can hear me. Yes, go on ahead, Trevor. Um, the item 8.4, <clears throat> the letter from uh, Mark Bassett and Professor Harvey in the Bar Library. Uh, they've offered to, they've issued a very interesting report, which is actually a year and a half old now, but <clears throat> still very relevant. And they've offered a new correspondence to assist the committee, as they put it, in considering the role of the executive office before and after any referendums in Irish unity. I think if we can find the time, I think that would be an interesting discussion to have with them. So I'd like to propose that we would accept their offer and bring them in sometime. Can I second that proposal from Trevor? Can I third it? There's a surprise. <laughs> Chair, you're on mute. We can't hear you. It's just as well you didn't hear what I just said there, but maybe you said that to me. <laughs> okay, so uh, Clark, if you could arrange for that, that there, please, and we'll get that fitted into the work programme. Thank you, members. Um, okay, item nine, any other business? Okay, then item 10 is the date, time and place of meeting, and that is next Wednesday via Starleaf again. Members, thank you very much indeed for your time today, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you.